This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, That's It, Harrys.com, and our contributors at Patreon. And we're back. What a week. As if we didn't have enough to do with this insane exorcism case, the Amelia Earhart photo has blown up into a viral sensation. <laughs> Just a little. Shall we talk about the 500-pound Sasquatch in the room? How can we not? Last week, as you heard in our cold open, we mentioned the now infamous Marshall Islands Jalowit Atoll picture that the folks who produced the History Channel special Amelia Earhart, The Lost Evidence, shared with the world. This picture was discovered by a seasoned investigator, Les Kinney, in the National Archives, and it was his belief that it depicted Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, on a dock after their disappearance, which in turn would support our favorite and what had been up until then, I think the least known theory about what had happened to them. We then went on social media and had a little fun with it, as we're wont to do, saying things like, told you so, we knew, and that old chestnut, mystery solved. Well, I said those last two things. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm forever going to be the I told you so guy. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, if you know us from this show, we don't try and take ourselves too seriously. I mean, we try and present information seriously, but we also try to be pretty down to earth when it comes to our actual role with any of it. So any comments were meant to be a little tongue-in-cheek. And it doesn't change the fact that we still stand behind the theory we first proposed about Earhart and Noonan's fate, which, between ourselves, we've been calling the Saipan Theory since 2014, when it was already nearly 50 years old. That theory posits that they were taken prisoner by the Japanese military, held captive until 1944, and then executed. Or Earhart, as some locals reported, may have died of dysentery. Just like in the Oregon Trail game. <laughs> Will you please stop referencing Oregon Trail? Who knew so many people died of dysentery? I mean, I guess that's why they put it in the game, but uh, anyway. Sorry. Okay, yes, anyway, as we covered it in our series on her, one of the theories that's been out there ever since her disappearance is that instead of the mainstream theory that they ran out of gas and ditched in the ocean, they were actually able to crash land near Jalawat Atoll and survived. However, the theory goes, they were soon picked up by a Japanese oceanographic survey ship, the Koshu, transported to Saipan, where they were immediately held prisoner and eventually executed just before the American military invasion of the island in 1944. And the picture that the folks from Amelia Earhart, the lost evidence, ran was declared by them to be proof of this theory. And now the internet headlines are all declaring Earhart photo discredited, debunked, and pretty much any other declarative certainty meant to be clickbait. Yeah, but the main things we'd like you to keep in mind during all of this is that first, no no one is saying the photo is fake. Well, just yet anyway. Whether the photo is totally fake or taken after her disappearance, or it is actually a picture of them on the dock at Jalowit right after their crash, it's irrelevant to the Saipan theory. The theory of Earhart and Noonan being held captive on Saipan has been around since, well, since they may have been held prisoner in Saipan by the Japanese. The first people, other than possibly the Japanese military themselves, to have noticed this are the Saipanese locals themselves, or Chamorros as they're known. Now, I don't know if it was casual racism, as the kids call it, but most people seem to have no trouble dismissing the over 200 eyewitness accounts by the locals at the time that a white man and a white woman matching Earhart and Noonan's description, along with their airplane, were taken prisoner by the Japanese and held at Garapan Prison. Then there are accounts from some Marines and GIs that were there, and they have their own testimony of Earhart having been there. Much of this theory was investigated by CBS News correspondent Fred Gordner and written about in his book from 1966, The Search for Amelia Earhart. 
So the point is, this Saipan theory is not based on a photograph from the History Channel documentary that as of the posting of this episode, the world at large has known about for roughly a week. If the photo is actually of Earhart and Noonan, then it just goes to further solidify that theory, not prove it 100% certain. If the photo is real, but was taken before they disappeared, it doesn't do anything to disprove the Saipan theory either, because then the photo is just of some other white folks at a dock with the locals having some seaside fun in the sun. So where does this leave us? Well, like so many other historical mysteries and paranormal topics, when another piece of what might be seen by some as evidence is unearthed, we're left with more questions than answers. But we feel these are questions we all need to think about when deciding what we want to believe about the fate of Amelia Earhart. For example, if no one is claiming the photo is fake, what is the airplane-shaped object the Imperial Japanese naval ship, the Koshu, is towing behind it? If Les Kinney found the photo in a recently declassified U.S. military archive, what was the photo doing there? Was it just another photo of a possible target for U.S. forces for an upcoming strike? And why, if the Koshu was just an oceanographic exploratory vessel? And speaking of archives, can you trust everything that shows up in an archive, even a government one? Think about Pierre Plantard and the Priory of Sion in France, all false information planted by someone in the French National Library. Why is there only one copy of a travelogue that was reportedly mass-produced? And where is the original book if this is just a scan? Can it be found? Can we send Forrest to Japan to check it out of the library? (laughs) Who's the original photographer, and was he really executed for being a spy? Look, our point is, if you're going to be skeptical, which is how we believe any mystery should be approached— then you should be skeptical of everything, including debunking. In the bigger picture, you can see the whole story of this photo so far as clickbait debunked in a clickbait style. So as you can imagine, we've got a lot more to say about this. But first, we're going to let the dust settle a bit. Because as a British off-road instructor once told me, the first thing you do after a vehicle rollover is sit down, have some tea, and plan your next (laughs) steps. And this seems like a good time to have a spot of tea. Well, it does indeed. Well, once we've done that, however, in a few weeks, we're excited to announce that we'll be doing a crossover show with the folks at the Chasing Earhart Project, where we'll be discussing all the latest developments of her story and talking with them about some of the fascinating new information they've come across in the production of both their Earhart-dedicated podcast, as well as a documentary slated for release in 2019. Yeah, these guys not only know everybody involved in the ongoing study of her disappearance, they're in the process of interviewing all those folks. In fact, I just hung up with the project creator, Chris Williamson, moments ago as he was walking out of the hangar housing the last Electra 10E in the world. Wow. He was researching Earhart for seven years before he even mounted this project. The Chasing Earhart Project is a three-part comprehensive case study that is made up of a 14-part documentary series, a bi-weekly podcast, and multifaceted website, where their team discusses the life and subsequent disappearance of Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan from a unique, non-biased platform, presenting the entire puzzle for the first time. It features over 100 experts, authors, historians, museums, and organizations, and will be the single largest scale project ever put forth on the life and disappearance of Amelia Earhart. So needless to say, teaming up with them for a crossover show is going to be a blast. Keep an eye on your feeds for that in the next month or so. Okay, time to get back to this week's series. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Choosing not to believe in the devil won't protect you from him. Anthony Hopkins as exorcist father Lucas Travant in the 2011 film 
the right. Join us tonight for part two of our series on Annalisa Michel, where we'll interview John Duffy, the author of the book Lessons Learned, The Annalisa Michel Exorcism. Last week, we started this series out by talking a little bit about the actual case of Annalisa Michel, all the time leading up to her death, how that was precipitated, and what brought about the exorcism and the path that she and her family took to get to that point. And a lot of the perspective on that was based on a couple of books that we had done some research from and also some information we had gotten from the research corps. The one book that I had read was by Felicitas Goodman entitled The Exorcism of Annalisa Michel, and that book was the inspiration for The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which we indicated, the movie that came out in the U.S. in 2005, I believe. And Forrest, you had read another book as well, right? Yeah, I thought it was a really good comprehensive read, and that one's called Annalisa Michel, A True Story of a Case of Demonic Possession, Germany, 1976. And there's two authors attributed here to this book, Lawrence E.U. LeBlanc and Father Jose Antonio Fortea. Right. So those two books gave us the perspective that we had intended to share in part one. However, looking at the bigger picture of the story, as we like to do, we're wanting to explore a lot of other angles with regard to what happened to Annalisa. And this case is still very controversial to this day, particularly, you know, I don't want to say warring factions, but these opposing viewpoints that argue the difference between treating someone with a spiritual issue and treating someone with just straight-up mental illness. And we want to handle that very carefully because a lot of times mental illness is not treated with the respect that it deserves to be treated with, especially in the podcast world. But I can say the same thing with regard to uh, theology and religious beliefs. And so we're trying to skate that thin ice of covering both of them in a fair and respectful way. Yeah, absolutely. I think you make a good point there. One side thinks it's being disrespected while disrespecting the other side. So it goes back and forth, and depending on, of course, your personal belief. But as we said, the the story doesn't end there because it's not just, well, I guess that didn't work. It's like now— Who's at fault for this? Exactly. Yeah, in any modern legal society, there has to be blame. Somebody has to go on trial for this. So that's really hard to determine. And again, that has a lot to do with belief. Do you believe that exorcism is possible? As we said towards the end of the last episode, if you do believe that's possible, that will shade your determination of this, is this a real case of exorcism? And if you, and if you don't, then it's a little more clear cut, but still very murky. And, and as Scott just mentioned, there's a lot about the psychology and psychiatric fields that we still don't know. Things are still being pieced together. And these days, as you know, we're finding out more and more new things every day, it seems. So in our effort to find the most information we could about the case, we obviously came across a lot of books. And one of the books that I was very intrigued by was the one that we mentioned over the theme a few minutes ago, Lessons Learned, The Annalisa Michel Exorcism. This book was written by Father John Duffy. And Father Duffy's perspective was particularly interesting to me because he believes very much in the idea of possession. And in his opinion, it is something that can, in fact, happen. However, he also believes that Annalisa Michel was misdiagnosed. So we are looking forward to an interview with him tonight, which we're going to share with you, our listeners, where you're going to hear me asking him a lot of questions about his particular perspective on the case, 
because we thought that it would be interesting to talk to somebody who believed in the idea of possession, but also believed that that was not what happened with Annalisa. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce him. John M. Duffy is a former priest for the New American Catholic Church and a chaplain for the American Legion. He's been researching and investigating matters of human behavior and anthropology since 2002. Additionally, he has investigated incidents of suspected demonic and other spiritual activity since 1999. His research in human behavior has resulted in a published paper in a peer-reviewed medical journal and two presentation opportunities for the Association of Military Surgeons of the United States and the Special Operations Medical Association. Most of his research has centered on the impact of the removable mandibular neuroprosthesis in the treatment of affective and physiological symptoms for persons experiencing PTSD. John's background includes formal training and experience in law enforcement, anti-terrorism intelligence operations, general psychology, cultural anthropology, parapsychology, theology, and counseling. He has a degree in psychology from Auburn University with honors and will soon complete a master's in clinical mental health counseling at Wake Forest University. At present, John lives with his dog, Ducky, in Alabama and continues his research into innovative ways to treat mental illness while maintaining his examination of all things suspected to be spiritual in nature. Okay, John, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Well, first things first, I just wanted to say thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. I'm very thankful that you gave me the opportunity to speak about this particular topic. It's a very sensitive topic, I know, and and a story that I think needs to be told. Well, it is sensitive, and we've been trying to be careful with it. A lot of times we get interested in a show idea, and then we start working on it, and we don't even realize the can of worms we've gotten into. (laughs) So... That's kind of right. That's when it's really time to call people with professional expertise so that we don't hang ourselves with our own tongues. So, (laughs) like that in mental health, too. Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) So, I had told your audience uh, about your background. I guess I just wanted to start out and ask you a few questions, if that's all right. Sure, sure. First of all, are you still affiliated with the New American Catholic Church? I am, but only loosely. Okay. And I think back in 2013, they changed the name. They've changed the name a couple of times since I was actually active as a clergyman. I think they're aligned more with the Reformed Catholic Church today, but I'm not exactly sure. I haven't been in contact in a while. Should be more, but I'm not. How do you describe that particular sect of Catholicism? Well, if we're going to look at it from conservative versus liberal type, it would probably be more liberal. Okay. It does interpret things of a social behavioral area that would be a little different than the Roman church would accept. Although if you walked into the church, the mass, the entire process is exactly the same every Sunday. Uh, Rite of confession is the same. Bedside mass is the same. The only difference is some doctrinal differences, some interpretive differences that would make us I think the only thing that would keep us from actually becoming Episcopal or Lutheran would be the fact that we still see the host as the actual body of Christ after the process of blessing. I see. So in that case, uh, that differentiates us from Protestants who see more along the lines of the presence of God during communion, whereas we see the actual body and blood of Christ still. And that's the big divider. Other than that, we're probably very much like Lutheran or Episcopal. Is it a large church? It's not a huge following. It had four really good running churches. I'm in the process of planting one here in Alabama. It started in Tallahassee Mm -hmm. and just kind of grew from there. 
there are some other congregations, and we have some other people that are ordained in the process, that we actually rent space in other churches. Like there will be congregations that will have a Mass on a Saturday instead of a Sunday at a Baptist church where we're using the sanctuary, sharing it, things along those natures. It's very small. It's not large at all, but I enjoy that. You know, it's a very small parish, very small. Everybody knows everybody, and, and it's really easy to, uh, to navigate through. Were you raised Catholic? No, actually I wasn't. I was raised Methodist, oh, okay. uh, United Methodist Protestant. And I began to explore, it's going to sound kind of strange. And when we talk about spiritual movements and things that compel you, this was one of those things. From about the age of seven, I found myself literally pulled towards Catholic churches. I identified with them. I can't explain it. I can tell you that that's how it was. And I eventually ended up in the Roman Catholic Church going through the catechesis and things of that nature, and then moving forward from there and eventually ending up with the, the uh, New American Catholic Movement. Oh, okay. And that's how that occurred, was through spiritual exploration. How exactly do you go from being a priest to becoming involved in law enforcement and anti-terrorist operations? Well, there's preaching and eating. (laughs) (laughs) Right. In a lot of cases, uh, even rabbis have jobs outside, you know. Sure, sure. It's along those lines. Um, I I enlisted in the Army back in 1994. I was started off as a military policeman and was deployed to Bosnia and Somalia and places like that. And my primary function in the law enforcement capacity after going through CID school, was war crimes investigations and crimes against humanity investigations. And this involved the mass grave sites in Bosnia and Serbia, oh and things of that nature. Uh-huh. And you get to see a side of humanity that really does fit the definition of evil. Yes. And from there, when I got out of the Army, I left at Fort McPherson, Fort Gillum, which is the headquarters of CID at the time, Fort Gillum, Georgia. I left there and went to work for Clayton County Police Department as, a, as an investigator for family violence. And I spent a number of years investigating child abuse and spouse abuse, uh, elderly adult abuse. I worked very closely with the Department of Family and Children's Services as well as adult protection units. And then that's where I got a lot of experience in looking at ligature marks and signs and, and uh, evidence of abuse. Oh, Okay. Uh, both living and post-mortem examinations of it. Oh, um, my goodness. And, and again, you got to see evil. I stared evil in the eye many a day. I can imagine. I don't, I don't know, frankly, if I'd have the stomach for a lot of what it sounds like you've done. There were some times when I had to literally pull patients and look at a person who had just killed his kid and talk to them in a civil tone. You really have to fight that urge to reach out and smack him. You know? uh, that's a very real temptation. I mean, you're looking at somebody who is sitting there saying the devil made him do it, and he made himself do it. He did it. Right. He was the one. Right. And so there's a level of responsibility that you're seeing them try to evade, but you stay with it, and you collect the evidence. And just like being in psychology, you stay professionally detached. Uh, You don't allow yourself to get emotionally involved, because that can create some very serious problems for you later down the road. Right. You mentioned to me that you had Mm -hmm. an interest in paranormal investigation in the past, and I'm curious Mm -hmm. about how you got down the road, you know, towards writing your book and when you became interested in demonic activity and the idea of possessions and exorcism. Sure. Demonology wasn't something that came up right away. Paranormal activities such as poltergeist activity and visual, what people would call ghosts or apparitions, always fascinated me. 
And then the reason I say this is because I don't want anybody to read the book that I've written and think that I'm a skeptic in the world of the spiritual world, because obviously I'm not. I've had my own experiences that I believe that I interpret to be ghost apparitions with my own eyes in the middle of the old battlefields. And I'm not talking about going up to a civil war anymore. I'm talking about going to Somalia or to Bosnia and looking across the mass gravesite and seeing shadows move. Right. That world does exist as far as I'm concerned. Now, there may be some scientific explanation for that, but human perception is what it is. And at that point, I became extremely interested in it. And so when I was working as a civilian police officer in Atlanta, that's where Clayton County is, uh, right where the international airport is, as a matter of fact, that, that was my OP. Okay. I started investigating things because Jonesboro wasn't far from there. And the Battle of Jonesboro was the one that broke the back for you know the Battle of Atlanta during the Civil War. And there was an old building there that everybody said was haunted. And so I went there, and since I was a police officer, everybody knew me, and I said, I'm going to stay the night here. I want to stay the night here with a couple of officer friends of mine, and we, we want to see if we experience anything. And of course, we spent the night, we didn't experience anything. So it was kind of disappointing because we were all kind of hopeful we'd see something. Sure. And then from there, I began to get involved in psychology courses, because at that point, after working in family violence, I wanted to start working in clinical mental health as well. So I was starting to get formal training in psychology and in counseling and clinical social work, and I decided to try something else. There was a research project in the University of Chicago where they used magnetic fields to influence and cause hallucinatory effect on a test subject. Is that the God helmet? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it could trigger certain sensations. It could trigger olfactory hallucinations. It could cause them to hear things see things, you know, smell things, taste things, even have tactile hallucinations or tactile false sensations. And so I got to thinking, I said, in the field, how would this apply? And so my very first research was on that house in Jonesboro, to make that story short, involving, instead of using the electromagnetic readers that people use to say there's a spirit there, I used it to say, This building was built in the early 1800s. It was updated in the 1920s. It has wiring that is still from the 1920s. And if it's circular over an area, it creates these magnetic fields. And I'm thinking, are these strong enough to trigger a brief experience in the mind? And I went through, I mapped the whole place. I did all the electronic. It was a very in-depth paper. I never published it. I wish I had. Um, I still have it. But the conclusion I came up with was not very conclusive that it was possible, but there certainly, it certainly wasn't strong enough fields to match what they were using with the God helmet. Right. So the person, the ghost that they were thinking they were seeing was a little girl in a painting that you find in the main hall of that house. Okay. But that painting comes from Charleston and the girl lived in Charleston. Okay. And so she wasn't indigenous to, and never lived in that house. And then of course, there's always the attachment theory to attachment to a painting or to an article or something along those lines. So I couldn't contest that. I I wasn't even experimenting to contest that. So that's where it started. And then from there, I started working. I left Clayton County Police Department, went to work for a contracted firm that worked for the Department of Defense. And that capacity, that's where I would work and use behavioral analysis to anticipate or to create vulnerability assessments for potential terrorist targets. So my job at that point was to assess physical and personal potential targets and then assess the security measures and the potential that they would be selected. And there's this huge algorithm, of behavioral algorithm that's used to apply to that. That's how I got involved in anti-terrorism. 
And it was during that time that I went and started studying theology and continuing with clinical mental health. That's how all of that got started. When it came to demonology, though, it was right before I left that particular company that I ran across Dr. Goodman's book. Yes. And that book, well, actually, I, I watched a movie. It was called The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Yes. And I'm not normally a big exorcism watcher. Um, I love horror movies, absolutely. Just I can sit and watch them. The zombie movies, I'm there. You know, absolutely. Yeah. I can watch them all day long. <laughs> but when it comes to possession, because of my own aversion, and I do avert uh, inviting anything of that nature around, because I do think that there are influences out there that we can't measure scientifically, but are there nonetheless. But this one, it was almost just like when I was a young kid called to the church. This compelled me to watch it. I don't know what it was, but I was compelled to watch it. Mm-hmm. And so I did. And, and I was watching, I was ready for the exorcist, spinning head, pea soup, all the whole nine yards. I was like, okay, yeah, this, this is going to be a roller coaster of horror. And I'm watching it, and it was like they spliced Matlock with the omen. Yes, yes. <laughs> it was a fantastic story. Yes. But then at the end, the big shot came, and it, it was based on the true story. So I looked into it, and it was saying it was based on the Annalisa Michelle case. Now, I had never heard of Annalisa Michelle or the Klingenberg case. I've run into other priests, Father Jeff up in Pine Mountain, Georgia. I've run into him and asked him about it when I, I actually talked to him about the book. And he was like, who? So yeah, I, I know that a lot of people ask that question. You know, she's pretty famous in, in the Catholic world. She's famous in certain circles. Right. I wouldn't say in all of Catholicism. Okay. And I thought, wow. Well, then again, there wasn't a voice in my head. There wasn't any. I just felt that gut instinct that an investigator feels. There's more to this. Sure. And I could not sleep. It stayed on my mind all the time. It's like one of the hardest murder cases, homicide cases I'd ever dealt with or something. It just would not leave me alone. It pestered me yeah. until I started looking into it. And then I looked into it and then was shocked uh, as I read Dr. Goodman's book because the facts are really good. I think she's a great anthropologist. Sure. And as I was reading through this, I was looking at it diagnostically and investigatorily. And I was seeing something completely different than what has been interpreted by a lot of people. What I saw in that case was a case of abuse, neglect, both emotional and physical abuse, especially near the end. I saw a a huge misinterpretation of the facts. And I'm not going to say a misrepresentation because I'm not going to judge anybody. That's just not in my nature. What I am going to point out is where we need to improve. Sure. And this was definitely one of those cases where we needed to listen a little more to the doctors than to proceed further. And that's how I got involved with it, was that it would not leave me alone until I hit the last period on the last page, the last paragraph, last sentence of that manuscript. And then I set it aside, and I didn't do anything with it right away. And I went for about a month, and then it started itching at me again. It started bugging me. It was, it was like something was pushing me to get this story out there, that something, and I would like to say, I would like to interpret that as Annalisa's spirit saying, this is what really happened to me. Right. That's why when I talk to people, I'm not one to say there's no such thing as ghosts, because I personally believe that there are. I'm not one to say there's no such thing as demons or the devil. I absolutely believe that they're there. And and I put it in the book. It's just this particular case, not every case, but this particular case was definitely a case of mishandling. Hey, you have any professors from college you still remember? Yeah, of course I do. Well, what was it about the way they taught that made you remember them? 
after all these many, many years. What is it with the age <laughs> jokes? You're saying I'm old. Again. I think that goes without saying. Well, touche. You're older than me, though. Remember that. <laughs> anyway, to answer your question, I think it's because those professors put a lot of personality into their lectures and a little bit of humor and, of course, a lot of expertise. And it really made the courses fun and interesting. And the stuff I learned really stuck with me. Well, exactly. And that's the great thing about the Great Courses Plus. They get the best people in the field, professors and experts who not only really know their stuff, but they make the subjects come to life. So the lectures are also really entertaining and you end up retaining the info. That is so true. And their roster of lecturers is like an all-star team. Well, one of our favorites is Professor Dorsey Armstrong, who's a noted medieval scholar and the one who taught us all about King Arthur and the current course we're revisiting, The Black Death, the world's most devastating plague. Hey, I wonder if she knows anything about exorcism in the Catholic Church of the Middle Ages. Do not, I repeat, do not bother <laughs> her on social media with your weird questions. I'm not bothering her on social media, as far as you know. But I did wonder how the church handled the generations of crisis with the great pestilence. Oh yeah, so how'd they do? Not well, it turns out. Not only because the church lost a huge number of the best and brightest of its own clergy to the plague, you know, just like the rest of the population, but it also couldn't provide any answers or comfort to the people who were suffering so terribly. But it also seemed like they couldn't persuade God to show any mercy. So they just appeared to be ineffectual all around. And weren't they replacing their lost ranks with just people, like, off the street or something? Yeah, and these guys were in way over their heads, and a lot of them were just in it for the better lifestyle. But even after all that, most people never lost their faith. You know, they say it can move mountains. Well, if you want to know more about fascinating history like this, or improve your business skills, get some health and fitness tips, or just about everything else under the sun, you can check out The Great Courses Plus for free for a whole month with unlimited access. Start your free month today just by signing up with our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hi, I'm Eva from Baltimore, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. Did this feel a little mm -hmm. bit like a cold case to you that needed revisiting? It certainly did. Right. It sure did. You know, I'm glad you used the word cold case because that's exactly how it feels. It's like there's some fact that's rattling around in your subconscious that's just aching to come to the surface, and you can't stop until you figure it out. A lot of police officers would identify with that, I can tell you, because we've all gone through that. Like, there's just, what am I missing? Right. And that's where it came from. So I went into this in-depth analysis. You know, if, when you read through the book, you find that I cite a lot of the cases in the book because the book that Dr. Goodman wrote, The Exorcism of uh, Annalisa Michelle, does contain some very useful facts for both science and behavioral science especially that would allow for some form of diagnostic analysis that would have some accuracy to it. I mean, I've had worse reports and police reports, you know, and, and this one was very well written. She'd make a great police officer if she decided not to be an anthropologist. <laughs> so when we went through that, I started analyzing these things. And that's how it ended up. That's basically how I ended up writing the book was because I was compelled to write it. I could not stop until it was finished. And I got a hold of uh, Bip and Stock Publishers. They got me with an editor and helped with all of my uh, grammatical mess ups. <laughs> and then we, we, we published it. And I think I did a couple of book signings. I did one lecture out in New Mexico, I think, once to talk about this case. And then I pretty much just let it ride. I, I pretty much figured that what's said has needed to be said. And then the other part of the book that deals with the process 
of exorcism and the determination of possession, I think is important because all we have is the Rituale Romanum, the Roman Rite, right. Volume 2. Right. And it's very vague. You, know, you have to think about when it was first written, that was years and years and years ago when psychology and medicine were in their absolute infancy. So it needed some fixing. It needed some upgrades, so to speak, I guess, in a, in a modern way of saying it, we needed to get some app upgrades on this. Sure. <laughs> so the other part was let's splice the spiritual section where we were recognizing demonic possession because it can happen. It's extremely rare. And I am a follower of that camp. I know there's about three different camps in Roman church alone that deal with the demonology. And one of them is that possession itself is very rare and that there's a strategic and tactical element to demonic activity. And we can get into that, of course, as we go. But the ritual itself is very archaic, very outdated. And it does contain a part in there that says to eliminate all of those things that indicate that it's melancholy. And back in those days, the word melancholy was the same as you know, depression, mental issue, depression. Right. Yeah. Okay. And depression, believe it or not, can provoke psychosis. They didn't know that then, of course. So in that part, that's the part that I sought to improve on, to make sure that all earthly explanations are covered before officially declaring that this is a demonic influence or a demonic entity involved, and then moving into the right. I mean, I know when you read in there, you'll see that there's this very complex step that involve medicine and psychologists and things of this nature. Most of that is for safety. When you're reading through it, you'll see that you have a nurse that's keeping blood pressure yes. and stuff like that monitored. The reason that I do that when I go into these determinations or when I go into investigating, I've done about 12 of them. The reason I do that is because if you have a person who is getting too excited, blood pressure gets too high, you're running the risk of heart attack, you're running the risk of stroke, you're running a lot of physiological risks here. And this is actually a part of it that assists the demonologist with the liability issues that you're showing due diligence. Right. You know, it, it, at that point, you know, and you're giving the authority to say, stop to that medical professional. It meets both requirements of protecting the victim from further harm, but also making mm -hmm. sure that in the end, from a liability standpoint, that you took all the right steps. Absolutely. And, and it's documented. I mean, you see in there also that there's how to document it. Yes. What procedures to go through, what evidence to collect. It even tells you how to create the case file. Sure. So that you have everything in order in a standardized way that allows for reason and spiritual interpretation to come together. Sure. And it, it allows that marrying of science and religion. It demonstrates that this is not an element of somebody, you know, like I said in my book, you know, Father Alt, who was interpreted of a schizophrenic type. I, I would think delusional personality would have been more accurate for Father Alt, but it would eliminate the possibility for a condition like that to influence and exacerbate a mental illness in another person. Even among counselors and behavioral scientists, we evaluate each other to make sure we're, we're not, our own personal issues are not influencing what we're doing. Sure. I mean, it's really funny, but counselors see counselors. Right. Psychologists see psychologists, and there's a reason for that, is to stay squared and, and grounded. And, and I think that priests and demonologists, psychologists should be doing the same thing, that we should be maintaining a level that requires that grounded nature to exist so that we're not accidentally projecting our own beliefs and ideas or perceptions onto 
something that in reality is entirely different. And it's easy to do. It can happen to anybody. I mean, magicians would be out of business if our perceptions didn't wander from what was real from time to time. Sure. And that's the idea of that is to incorporate science with religion. There's an idea, and there's a whole other book I've written that's called Science and Religion, A Contemporary Perspective. And in this book, it actually sprung from the Annalisa Michelle book. And it talks about how science and religion are not adversaries. Unfortunately, in a lot of churches, science is seen as impugning on spirituality, as being sinful in that area of, of denying God. And on the science side, religion is seen as obsolete and in the way. And those are two completely wrong ways to see our duality between science and spirituality. If you're looking at it strictly from the Christian point of view, then from the Christian point of view, there is God and there's the universe and he is creator and he created all of these things and the rules that they operate under all over the, throughout the universe. Uh, and we venerate God for that and Jesus for coming and teaching us these ways. Science is a tool. It is not a philosophy. It is not a religion. It is a tool. It is a method for discovering. And that's a key term that we need to remember, that science discovers and then exploits what's discovered for the benefit of humanity, or we hope that they do. I mean, nuclear weapons definitely aren't in our benefit, but the idea is that science discovers those rules and those laws of physics and those laws of chemistry and so on and so on that were instituted when the universe was created. So one is discovering those laws, and the other is venerating what put those laws into existence. Okay. So does that make sense? Yes, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah, and so that's the perspective I take on this, is that there are areas science hasn't discovered yet. That doesn't mean they're not there. We can't see air molecules, but they're certainly there, and we wouldn't live without them, would we? Right. So we had to eventually discover you know, molecular chemistry and to figure out how these molecules are working around, how gases work. But before then, we had no idea. They were spirits. And so we can, as we grow... And if you look in the Bible, there is a phrase in the Bible that says, all things are revealed in due time as God sees fit. And if you think about our technological and scientific evolution, our history, things have been revealed in due time. They're not in competition with each other. Science is not replacing God. Science is just another way of discovering it. Even Einstein said the more he learns, the more he becomes convinced there's a God. Yes, we actually have quoted that before on the show. Mm -hmm. So it's not an adversarial thing. When they talk about evolution versus creation, well, we don't know the exact timeline of creation either, do we? Right. We just know that he said, and it occurred. The funny thing is, is Darwin was a seminariat for the Anglican Church. You know, the science does not compete with religion. It is not seeking to repeal, so to speak. That's a bad word to use in these days. It's not seeking to replace. <laughs> well, yeah, we don't do it's politics not... on our show, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't either. <laughs> so it's, it's not seeking to replace God. The scientists are not demons. They're not satanic. They're people. And their inquisitiveness uncovers all of those beautiful, wonderful, really spectacular things that God created that came into existence. And when people talk about the Big Bang, well, God said, let there be light. Bang, there it is. Yes. I mean, you can really interpret it that way. Right. A day for God could be millennia for us. Sure. We just don't know. If you think about a cosmic clock compared to an Earth clock, 
you know, you have 24 hours, the earth spins, right? Yeah, 365 days, it goes around the sun. But what if you're going off a cosmic clock where it's an hour is a thousand seconds, sure. a thousand minutes, sure. you know, and so on. He likes seven, maybe there's 700, 777, or, you know, all of these different things that exist. So we don't know all of those things. I think we're discovering slowly all of those things. I don't think we'll discover them all. I don't think we're capable of comprehending everything. To make that clear, because I, I've had some, some really nasty letters written to me where they're saying that I'm turning my back on God and I'm ridiculing religion. I am not ridiculing Christianity at all. What I'm saying is, is in this particular case with this young lady, we dropped the ball. Let's talk about Annalisa a little bit, because I did have some questions mm-hmm. from your book about sure. her. It's so interesting to me because I I learned a little lesson about myself, I think, because when I read Dr. Goodman's book, she was clearly coming at it from a biased point of view. At least she had made her conclusion before she wrote it. It was very thorough, as you said, and very detailed. And she compiled, Mm -hmm. it seemed at the time, all the information you could on it. But by the same token, it seemed clear from the outset, even in the preface, that she believed that Annalisa was definitely possessed. So when I went through the book, and I I would see Dr. Goodman saying, well, they said this about Father Alt, but I think it might have been a mischaracterization, or Annalisa said this about her mom and her dad, but at the same time that she was talking to a doctor who was an expert in Freudian psychology, and maybe he was looking too hard for things that fit that. So for me, when I came Mm -hmm. away from the book, I felt like I bought part and parcel into her skewed point of view even though in the bigger picture, even to this moment, to right now, I'm still open to the idea that she was mentally ill and not spiritually disturbed. But my question is, you seem so sure that there were things going on that I didn't see. And it's funny because we looked at the same words, and I thought that was really fascinating. Right. <laughs> and, like, <Yeah>. and, it, <laughs> and it made me wonder about myself. Because, for example, there was one thing where there was Dr. Linner, I believe it was, who had mentioned in Goodman's mm-hmm. book that she likely had an intense hatred for her parents. But then later in the book, I saw where her boyfriend Peter said to her, maybe you don't like your parents or do you hate your parents? And she's quoted in the book as saying, don't be ridiculous. I love my parents. They're kind people, that sort of thing. So for me, I didn't really pick up on a necessary an animosity or even a feeling of oppression between her and her parents. I did see all the texts that said, you know, they weren't allowed to go out or go dancing or visit with boys. And when I say they, I mean her and her sisters. Right. Yeah, but I didn't sense that it was a full, like, Cinderella situation. But you seem to feel that that relationship was maybe more oppressive than how I perceived it from Goodman's book. Right. And and I think I can explain that really well. Okay. Um, a lot of people with my professional background, having worked with children who lived with abusive parents, and yet you have to also understand that abuse is not always physical, sure. especially from mothers. It is almost always traumatically affective or emotional abuse. Okay. And so you can have a person who develops a facade. It's really good in, in families that are affected by abuse where there's alcohol involved as well. Okay. You have a development in the child of an intense hatred for the person that oppresses them, who abuses them, who tears them down. That hatred comes out. It does develop. And if you deal with a lot of abused children, and, and I've, I've unfortunately had the opportunity, it's an unfortunate affair for them, but as a behavioral 
science, it's, it's been an opportunity to see these. And one of the characteristics of a person abused, especially one abused by the female parent, is that they have an intense hatred for that person. They absolutely despise them. But at the same time, they have issues of guilt because of the expected social areas. She's my mother. Nobody would understand the hatred. So when I'm talking to my doctor, I can bring it right out. I know it's not going to be repeated. Peter, on the other hand, is one of those what we call third-party observers. Mm -hmm. And these are usually the ones that call defects and get us out there and involved in abuse cases because they're the ones who can see the animosity, who can see the meanness, who can see the response to the meanness. Uh-huh. And can see in the, the attitude and the speech of the person that hatred coming out. You, do you see how that's? Yes. So when you're working with them, for somebody like me or in the same profession, that pops right up. For Peter to say that, that means Peter is seeing that. For her to deny that is one of those areas of that facade, that type of unity that occurs in dysfunction. That, you know, we can hate each other, but this is our secret. Nobody steps into this. So there is always the facade of the great family. I mean, Ugh, if you could yes. see how many abuse-affected families, they all put on the facade. They put on the masks of this great Brady Bunch family. Yes. But behind the doors, they're getting slammed around, eyes blackened. And when they go home, that door shuts. Yes. The real devils are the people that they're dependent on Yes. at that point. And so this is where I see that. That's why it pops right out to me. Because I'm used to seeing it. You're seeing an undercurrent that I'm not exposed to because I don't have, and I said yes, I sounded very familiar with it, because I have a large extended Southern family, which I think anyone will tell you always has an undercurrent where on the front there's a, like you said, there's this facade that everything is great and wonderful. And I actually remember as a kid, when I went from my Pollyanna view of what was happening at large Christmas family gatherings to the understanding <laughs> what was really going on behind the curtain and, and all of that, like mm-hmm. it was a very big eye opener for me. And I wasn't in an abusive situation and I, I, I don't believe anyone in my family was, but I remember thinking, wow, I really had this all wrong <laughs> for a long time. Yeah. There's a lot of jabs <laughs> and pokes and yeah. there's jealousies and there's, and none of this will come out in public when somebody from outside the family comes in. Yeah all of a sudden everybody's cheery and they're all, yay, we're great. This wonderful family. It's the Brady's. Right. And then as soon as they leave, the boxing gloves come out. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and that's typical. I mean, at different levels, of course, but that's typical almost of every family. You know, we keep our business inside. and Nobody else gets to see that. That's the intimate part of it. And now it's even more, I guess, exacerbated by technology with uh, Facebook and Instagram and mm-hmm. everyone's posting pictures of, on the playground and, there's no right. one's posting pictures of, of the things that aren't going right. Yeah, me and Henry went on vacation. It's not Henry blackened my eye when we got back after he had a six-pack. Yeah, right, right, right. It's along those lines. So you're seeing the Facebook, and Peter got a glimpse of what's really going on, and he verbalized that, which happens a lot with outside third-party observers and experiencers. They will say something, and then, of course, there's the bark back of, you know, you're going too far. Step away. Don't mess up my facade here. Can I ask you a little bit about some of the things that Forrest, my co-host, who I know you haven't met, but like he and I talked in our first episode a little bit about some of the things that seem to be supernatural in origin. And I do want to say this with regard to Annalise's case. When we came to it, I knew it was a famous case because I had seen the movie and I had a rough familiarity with the story. And a lot of times, and Forrest gets on me about this, I'll green light or say, hey, let's do this. Let's do a show on this before we really drill down on it and find out 
first of all, if there's really a lot of meat to the story or if there's something more to it than meets the eye. And in this case, I was actually surprised with Goodman's book at how little paranormal or unexplained activity was actually happening. Because I was expecting to read about, as Forrest says, spitting nails, levitation, all that. And (laughs) none of that is happening. What we've got going on, but we did have some other things. And these are things I want to talk to you about because your analysis of these things was different from mine. And I just wanted to get your point of view for the Mm -hmm. sake of our listeners. Because what we do is we look at every angle on everything we cover. That's how we like to do the show. So, and that's why I was- That's good. That's good science. Well, I was so excited to have you on to talk about your point of view about it. But I guess what I wanted to know is a couple of the- things that happened. And I'm going to just do all three of them right here and we can address each one after I go through them. But one was the rapping sounds, the knocking sounds that Mm -hmm. I had interpreted as Annalisa hearing by herself at first, but then later I thought as Mm -hmm. I'd read the book, and I'm going to correct myself here in a minute, that her sisters had said they had heard them too. And then there was the foul smell, which I was convinced that there Mm -hmm. were witnesses to that on the bus returning from the shrine at uh, San Damiano mm-hmm. when when they went there, and that would have included her father and Thea Hine. Who, in your book, you have his Hines. I'm not sure what her the difference is there. Dr. Goodman has her as Hine without a Z, and you have her with a Z, so I, I don't know which what's right there. But yeah, Hine? Yes. There's different spelling. Okay. It's actually Taya. Taya. Yeah, I figured we were saying that wrong. I, I said that to Forrest, yeah. but okay. <laughs> Taya. Yeah. Yes. So, but it was my understanding that Taya and her father, uh-huh. Joseph, had experienced this odor on the bus as well as other people on the bus. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing that was described in the story was when Father Renz, during one of the exorcism sessions, brought in the holy water in unmarked bottles mixed with tap water. And there, Dr. Goodman describes that she only reacted to the holy water, which was something only he knew which bottles had that. So, and and then after I read your book, and you seem to be saying, well, let's take a look at this. This isn't what happened. That's not happened. And that's what happened. Then I went back and looked at Dr. Goodman's book. And what I saw was that, in fact, it was Annalise's mom, Anna, who was saying that the other girls had heard the sounds. And so if Anna's mom is complicit in enforcing this idea that she's possessed, then of course she's reinforcing it by saying mm-hmm. that secondhand Absolutely. people witnessed mm-hmm. something. But with regard to the holy water and the sound, so it lost some credibility for me, even though I perceived it as a more direct evidence of something supernatural initially after reading your book and seeing it from another angle, I felt differently. I mean, what is your position on the holy water situation, because you actually mentioned in your book, in terms of processes and procedures, that it's a good test. Mm-hmm. And also yeah, you your position the about the smells. Test. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in, 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 in medical terms or in, in psychology terms, it's called a placebo test. Right, okay. And you're using it in reverse from what you would use it in research. So if you're doing an experiment, you would use a placebo in order to make sure that you're eliminating the, the extraneous variable of of the placebo effect. Sure. In this case, what you're doing is is you're using tap water and holy blessed water, and you're not exposing to this person which one you're using. Right. And when you use the regular water, there's no response. You use the holy water, there's a response. You actually want to expand on that a little bit. Try five bottles, all tap except for one, and see how they respond. This gives you a better database to look at what we call a baseline to look at to see if this is a true possession or if this is a psychosis, because a true possession, they're only going to respond to one thing. The problem with using two bottles instead of using multiple 
is it's like flipping a coin. You can guess and be 50% accurate versus if you use five bottles, you can guess and only be have one-fifth of a chance to be correct. Sure. Can you see how you're statistically narrowing down the possibility that this is coincidence? Sure. So that would be the only thing I would say in that area. That's one thing. If she did respond to holy water, would be an indicator. I would be looking at that claim, okay, we need to explore further. And I would document that very well. I think that one of the, the things about the actual exorcism process, the determination process itself is, is that the lead priest didn't document it. And I think even Malachi, and I know he died what, in late 1990s, sure. Malachi Martin would have at least documented some of this. Father Renz, yes, didn't. You're saying he didn't. Yeah. He recorded it out of tapes, but not enough written documentation. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. And I have been in the emergency room when a person has a psychotic break. Now, at the time I wrote this book, I'd only had some exposure to this. But since then, I've had years of experience with dealing with psychotic breaks and psychosis or psychotic episodes. The screaming that you're hearing in these tapes, I hear every time I go to the emergency room and somebody stopped taking their meds. Right. It sounds just the same. It doesn't sound any different. And that's one of the reasons why that alone should not be an issue of determining demonic possession. Okay. And that would have to be something that accumulated with other elements of evidence. I mean, you could use it, but you would have to support that with other things. One of the arguments that I would say in in the Annalisa Michelle case is is that there are episodes in there where when she was taking antipsychotic medications and anti-seizure medications, she was perfectly normal. There were no reported incidents. When she came off the meds, Then she started re-experiencing these issues. That is a huge psychiatric red flag. Sure. That you're not dealing with supernatural. You are dealing with brain chemistry. And that's pretty much what I'm thinking is the case. And I'm still convinced of that with the case of Alice and Michelle. Right. So your contention is that she was just ultimately, she was misdiagnosed, even though we're looking at one (laughs) diagnosis that's spiritual and the other one is medical or scientific. She was erroneously mm-hmm. diagnosed with a spiritual problem when, in fact, she had a medical or a mental health issue. Right. And, and I use the word diagnosis um, a little bit differently than my behavioral science colleagues would. They would just flip out okay. if I said diagnosing spiritual illness. Yes. But that is a diagnosis. Well, and right? that's the You're thing. I feel weird saying problem. it myself, but mm-hmm. I can't figure another way to make a comparison between these two. And even the idea of talking with you about taking a scientific approach to determining if someone is possessed, that's a little bit like, wait, what am I saying? Does this make sense? And where, <laughs> you know, where does this come from? Yeah, it's like a physicist who says he invented a time machine. Sure. Because yeah, they, they cringe every time you mention time in quantum physics. And it's the same thing in psychology. If you say, if you're uh, in, as a clinical counselor, which is where I'm headed right now and specializing in, if I say I saw a ghost in Bosnia, the first thing that would come to their mind is, are you serious? Right, right. <laughs> Come sit on our couch. Yes. You know, so it, it depends on perspective. For me, I think that if you look at the term diagnosis, you are labeling or determining an affliction. And in that case, then if there's demonic possession involved and you have ruled out all other symptomatic criteria, then that's your diagnosis, right? Yes. It's funny, too, because it also reminds me of why airline pilots don't always report UFOs. <laughs> So, exactly, yeah, right? Yeah. But you know, there's there's obviously military operations going on that you would legitimately see some odd craft and go, wow, that was crazy. Yes. And that's exactly what everybody on the ground would think. The fish that got away. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Nobody believes you. So I use that term, but I, I have to be very careful to make sure that, that in 
the behavioral profession, they would not use anything spiritual as classifying as diagnosis. Right, I understand. But for me, I see where they come together in that point. And you also have to look at Felicitas's term in the beginning of her book. She uses the term that she has no doubt about having a demonic possession experience. Now, one of my other areas that I kind of minored in in my younger days is anthropology, cultural anthropology, cross-cultural psychology, a lot of these things. When an anthropologist or a social psychologist uses the term demonic possession experience or spiritual experience, in professional terms, they're not actually saying this person is possessed. What they're saying is is that the social experience, the expected behavior in that culture is being experienced. In other words, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a reality. It means that that's a perceived reality for that individual in that social setting, in that culture. Right. That's something that needs to be very, very much defined for Dr. Goodman. And I know there are other people who would see an opposing view of that. But having worked with anthropologists and archaeologists and having worked in the psychology field, we don't say a person suffers from PTSD. We say they're experiencing PTSD symptoms. Right. And that's how the professionals communicate. Also, one of the things that's really beautiful about anthropologists, when they're writing about a cultural experience, they write from the eyes of a person in that culture. So that's how you learn how they perceive things in that culture. So she's going to write as though she's in that culture, seeing it from that perspective through their eyes. So there are a lot of things that are going to be said in that book that could be very easily misconstrued as a professional in the field saying, this is what's actually happening. Now, I can say that she's written other books, and I'm quite certain that she herself believed that there was a demonic possession involved. Right. That being said, but it is important to distinguish when she says demonic experience, demonic possession experience. This is a term that comes up a lot in cultural anthropology. When you're dealing with Hindu religion or you're dealing with an indigenous tribe in South America, when they have a spiritual invasion experience, this is where the person is experiencing in accordance with their belief that another spirit has entered their body. But it's a belief. It's not a reality. It's a manufactured reality. And it's part of that person's culture, so it becomes the reality for the whole group involved. And this is where you're getting a lot into sociology and and social behavior, and that has a lot of impact on the Annalisa Michelle case. You've got a lot of people who are in this particular subculture in Germany, and they are acting in accordance with the expectations. In other words, they're acting in accordance to conformity to those social norms at that cultural level. And these are some things that need to be kept in mind when you're reading Dr. Goodman's stuff as well. Not in every case is she saying that it's a possession. There's a lot of cases where she's just saying it's simply an experience. And you see that a lot. If you read anthropology books or anthropologists who have written on witchcraft or voodoo, you'll see them using the same terminology. But they're not saying that that person in voodoo is actually possessed by some spirit or that that person is actually a living dead person. What they go on to explain is that this person was exposed to a detritoxin from the gallbladder of a pufferfish, and they went into a comatic state that everybody thought was death, and then when he came to, everybody said he was a living dead person. That's the definition, and medically, of a zombie. Right. Of their culture, it's different. He's a living dead person. Right. See? Right. So he's experiencing a zombie experience, but is he really a living dead person? No. He has a pulse. He has a blood pressure. He's, right. <laughs> he has to eat. <laughs> 
So it's along those lines. And when you're, when you're dealing with anthropologists, archaeologists, and sociologists, social psychologists, they use a lot of terminology like that. The average person, when they're reading it, could very easily misinterpret. Okay. That's something that's very important to put in there, I think. Yeah, um, sure. And that's probably a little bit of what happened to me, frankly, because I don't have any experience dealing with, or, you know, a very light amount of experience dealing with reading something from that point of view and, and taking that into sure. account. And, and that could happen to anybody. I'm not a professional in seamanship. I could probably read a professional term in fishing or, you know, professional fishing and, and completely misinterpret what they mean and be out in the stream doing something that everybody thinks I'm crazy. Right. <laughs> right. <know>? It, <laughs> so that could happen to anybody. That's not a criticism to anybody. It's a matter of perspective and perception. All of it is a matter of, you know, I don't think I would argue with anybody's perspective on this issue. I, I could just tell you what I see. One of the things that I thought was interesting about your book was when you essentially when you posited that Anna, Annalisa's mother, might have mm -hmm. essentially been, and not necessarily with malicious intent, but essentially pushing the agenda that Annalisa was possessed for reasons oh, yeah. reasons mm -hmm. relating to fear, having grown up and lost family under the Nazi regime and fearing for Annalise's future as a teacher, which she wanted to be because of the stigma of mental illness and all that. Do you seem to think that maybe Anna's desire to push it towards possession in terms of perception, as mm -hmm. well as maybe Father Alt's position, those two things worked against Annalisa as, as her condition worsened? Yes, I do. And I'm not, to, you know, I'm not going to say, and I hope that didn't come across the book. I'm, I'm really praying that that didn't come across as a criticism of Anna. Anna uh, just survived war, a terrible war, but not just a war. She had to survive the actual culture in which she was in because it was devouring itself. If you'll remember, and we have to use a little history here with this particular cultural environment, we have to remember that eugenics was a huge part of the Nazi regime. You had to be genetically pure. In sanity, they would euthanize the people who were deemed as developmentally disabled, people that we used to call retarded, but today are developmentally disabled, people who have mental illness. They would take them and euthanize them because they were genetically impure. They would go off to the death camps. They would become the angel of death's experimental toys or you know, these demented things. So this was a real fear for this person. And that fear gets conditioned. And now, now we're going to get away from Freud because I'm not a big Freud guy, but I am going to talk a little bit about Skinner and Watson when we talk about behaviorism. And so this becomes a conditioned response to anything that she thinks the outside world would consider impure yes. or of Jewish nature. This automatic reaction is good. This is the 70s. It's only a few years after the end of it, and nobody's getting treated for it. Right. You know, she could, and I would definitely entertain the belief that Anna may have even had post-traumatic stress disorder. Sure. You don't have to be the soldier in the war to get that. Post-traumatic stress disorder could develop from any type of life-threatening trauma. And so, in this case, I would think that there was some delusional thinking that was rooted in a conditioned response to survive. Sure. And I think I kind of bring that up in the book, too. Yes, you did. But she went to hell. She had to watch some march off to death camps and the rest march off to war and then the bombs flying over top of your head during the end of the war. She had to survive that just like her husband did, but from different ways. A formative younger period in her life, too, right? So Yes, absolutely. At which point it carries even more, it has more of an impact probably on your sense of survival as you get older. Right. And the development of dysfunction as a parent and dysfunction in the family increases uh, extraordinarily. And, you know, I think it was really interesting to bring up the idea of OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is an anxiety. Uh, it's an attempt to cope with anxieties, this impending doom. 
if I don't do this, something will happen. You know, I have to, to wash my hands seven times or touch the doorknob three times before I open it. Or These kind of compulsive behaviors are usually rooted in some anxiety. Yes, and we're, somewhere. we're actually going to be talking to some experts on OCD, hopefully mm-hmm. in our next episode. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting yeah, some insight I, there. I would definitely probably be interested in listening to it as well, because I think that they would be onto something there. Diana was a traumatized person along with everybody else in that generation. And that in itself is going to develop some disorder. And I think her way of coping with it was these compulsory areas. And I think when it came to punishing the children, I think when people read my book, I had one person ask me one time, he said, what do you mean by using religious artifacts and things as a means to punish the children? And I think if I could reword it, I would. um, Because what I'm trying to communicate there is not the religious items themselves were used as punishers, but the use of the prayer rosary to ignore the child when the child is expressing aggravation, anger, trying to communicate. It's like in our culture back in the days when people would rattle the newspaper in order to ignore their child. Sure. Or they would do to purposefully deny that child love, affection, attention that's necessary for their development. And that would contribute a great deal to Annalise's social developmental problems. She didn't interact well at all. And that was one of those reasons was was because she wasn't able to cope in social environments because of her isolation. One of the most important things that we find in child development research is that as a child is developing, it is better for them to be in an environment like at school that is diverse, that requires them to develop social skills with their peers as they grow up, that allows them to imitate those adult roles they'll play as they get older, they become better developed and better capable of socially conducting themselves and surviving as adults. When you keep them isolated, as in Annalisa Michelle's case, then you have a person who has not been exposed to these variable environments where they have to learn. And again, we're going back to behaviorism and cognitive behavioral ideas here. They have to learn through experience, trial and error, these behaviors and how to cope and how to deal with social environments. You put her in a church or you put her in a group of people that she's not used to, she's going to have what's called an aversive behavior to that. She's not used to it. It intimidates her. She's going to want to get out of there. In, in addition to that, her father definitely loved his girls, but he was mm-hmm. possibly, you thought, suffering from PTSD from the war and also just not sure. real good at communicating his love for the girls, which mm-hmm. in turn... I thought was interesting because once you pointed that out, I went back to that moment in Goodman's book where she had said, I can't remember to who, maybe to one of her doctors, but that she couldn't love Peter, that she felt cold and couldn't connect with him. And initially I thought, oh, well, this is part of this possession or whatever is going on with her. But in reality, it Mm -hmm. seems like maybe she just didn't learn that because she didn't get it from her father. Even if he had the best intentions, he couldn't convey it. Right. She did not learn that. Even romance or romantic relationships are learned behaviors. Our first models of how men and women come together as a married couple are who? Our mom and dad. Right. If there is a separation and a vacancy in affect and interaction that's healthy, they're not going to learn the healthy way. They've never seen it. So when they're adults, it's not going to happen, especially when in that isolation you're raised to believe that, and when we're talking about human sexuality, we're talking about her ability to enjoy sex with Peter Yes, was one of the issues. 
this comes from two things. One is she doesn't really know what her role is in, in a romantic relationship. Second is to have these desires is a sin. It's evil. It's terrible. At the same time, she's struggling with these feelings that she has as a woman emerging. You know, the urge to merge, as we used to call it when we were younger, (laughs) (laughs) is is now being blocked with this guilt feeling. Right. You know, it's almost like I'm doing something terribly criminally wrong, that kind of guilt. So the problem is her conflict or inner conflict. And I know that sounds very much Freudian. And a lot of people want to say it's Freudian. It's not really Freudian. It is in a kind of psychodynamic view but it's in a more advanced psychodynamic view. So there are issues where we tend to triangulate something. Oh, this is something interesting. I think that might help the audience and you as well. When we go back to what we were discussing with what Peter saw and what's going on in the family, there's an issue in dysfunctional families that's called triangulation. Okay. There's an issue involved where you have in a family environment, and this happens a lot in dysfunctional families, they triangulate. And what this means is, is there's three characters. There's the two that have the problem with each other. But because of power issues or fear, they don't directly communicate their aggravation and anger with each other. So, for instance, if Annalisa is in the inferior role with her mother, who, if she voiced her concerns, would be abused even more, they'll triangulate and create a third party to complain and fight about so that they're not directly dealing with each other. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. So when you're doing family therapy and we're talking to the family, a lot of times the daughter becomes the pseudo-spouse or the son becomes the pseudo-spouse for the other. And one gets jealous of the other and the child acts out the behavior that should be acted out between the two adults. Oh my gosh. I've even seen it happen with them complaining about the dogs. There was a couple that I was researching and they the lady just lavishly loved this dog and the dog was the center of all of her attention. Mm -hmm. And she pushed her husband off and her husband was a little jealous of that. He'd like a little time with his wife, you know, Fido can sit on the floor for a little while, but that was the triangulation. The dog became the center of aggravation, not the fact that their closeness is, is, is the center of aggravation. Yes. And so this happens in a lot of dysfunctional families. So what happens with Annalisa is if, You don't have to have a physical object to be that other element. It can be a fictional character. I'm flashing back to a relationship before I met my wife, a relationship I had in college (laughs) with a girl. Well, give me another year and and I'll finish up my certification for family counseling. Y'all can come see me. No, I feel like like you're just a few steps away from saying, tell me about your mother. And then I'm going to like really start getting, oh my God, all this stuff happened. But uh, (laughs) it's so fascinating. In in Freudian terms, you have the Oedipus syndrome and the Electra syndrome, all these things. That's all passe. That's all gone. I don't think they paid any attention to that since the 70s. Right. Really, I don't. Right. But there is evidence in developmental psychology that deals with parental examples of interactions with parents and what parents do that affect the developmental course of a child into adulthood. Sure. In many cases, a lot of cases of depression, especially chronic depression, of anxiety disorder, Mm -hmm. all of these issues when we're dealing with an adult in therapy, come from them constantly trying to reconcile problems they had with their parents in childhood. Now, that's not Freudian. That's that's developmental. Yes, of course. And so when you start bringing it up to their attention, allowing them to realize on their own that I'm hurting my presence because I'm still trying to use a coping mechanism that worked for me in the past but is now interfering with my ability to function as an adult. 
And they eventually come around and understand that. So then they let go of the old mommy daddy issues. I mean, I'm sure you've heard those. You've got an issue. Here's a tissue um, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's, I haven't but, heard but that. But a lot of people that's do. Pretty, that's yeah. <laughs> got an issue. Here's a tissue. Yeah. yeah. That's like the world's smallest violin thing, which uh, I sometimes jokingly do with my son, who has a very healthy relationship with me. Right. And that's fine. I mean, yeah. it's, it's good to be able to confront an issue. Yes. Between you. That's healthy communication. Sure. It, it's unhealthy when you have an issue that you cannot communicate and resolve. Yes, of course. The unhealthy practices prevent that. It's perfectly healthy to have an argument. Right. It's, if you could sit back there and say, you know what, if you're talking to your wife and you're saying, honey, you know what, I really hated it when you did that. I really wish you would stop doing that, blah, blah, blah. And you're going back and forth and you're communicating. Eventually, it starts off with the anger, but then what happens? In a healthy relationship, it starts going into resolution. Yes. And then into making up. And the making up is always the funnest part, right? Yes. So <laughs> that's healthy. It's okay to argue problem is when you have anger that cannot be expressed. Right. And like steam building up in a pot, it goes in the direction of least resistance. And so with parents, a lot of times that becomes the kid, the least resistant target. Man, your craft service for the studio is the worst. You got anything to eat around here? I just did a little pick-me-up, you know, just something for our next six hours of recording. Well, I don't know if you looked over there, but there's an overripe peach <laughs> sitting on the counter. Uh, I think I'll pass. I mean, no, I do like the idea that it's a healthy snack, but whole fruits are a little messy, and I still got a lot of typing to do. All right, take a look in the drawer. That's it. What's it? This dried out marker without a cap? No, no. Keep looking. That's it. Dude, what's it? I don't see anything edible in here. Are you trying to get me to do a who's on first sketch? No, the fruit bar. It's probably way in the back. Oh, that's it. Oh, yeah. I've eaten a lot of these that's it fruit bars. They're actually really delicious. Well, what's this one doing in the back of the drawer? I actually was trying to hide it from my son so I could at least have one from the box I just got from them before he ate them all. But you know what? He can eat as many as he wants because it's a healthy snack. So I actually feel good that he's eating fruit for a change because it's just fruit and nothing else. That's it. Get it? Yes, I get it. But you are right. It is a great snack, not just for kids, but really for anyone that's on the go and just wants something that's healthy and a great source of fiber with zero fat. Yeah, and it doesn't have any of the stuff you don't want, like added sugar, preservatives, or concentrates. It's also a delicious way to satisfy your sweet tooth if you're vegan or on a raw diet, you want something gluten-free, or even kosher. Well, that's what you get, and only what you get, when the ingredients are just fruit. You know, and more fruit, but seriously, that's it, get it? Yeah, they get it. We said that a bunch of times. <laughs> well, you can already get That's It Fruit Bars at Whole Foods, CVS, and your local Starbucks. But now That's It is offering a special deal for our listeners. Go to that'sitfruit.com, enter the code LEGENDS at checkout to save 10% off your order. Order yourself a box like we did and try these bars out. You're going to love them. Again, go to that'sitfruit.com. Enter the code LEGENDS at checkout and save 10% off your order. Your taste buds and your body will thank you. No, of course, do not eat that on the mic. I'm going to. Hi, I'm Jenny Chang, co-founder of the Geek Subscription Box for Women Fan Mail. You're listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show. 
looking at the bigger picture with Annalisa mm -hmm. and looking at Anna right. and Joseph, her parents, it's almost as though what happened to her is a window into what was going on at home for them and mm -hmm. the, the issues that they had with Joseph possibly having PTSD and being uh, emotionally mm -hmm. distant. And then Anna having her own version, possibly, of PTSD or something similar and being concerned mm -hmm. about how how her own family is perceived and how Annalise is perceived and all of that working together and Anna socially not being able to deal with group environments, which when she went off to mm -hmm. school and that sort of thing, because she had been isolated and essentially socially oppressed, all that works together to build up. And if there's the presence of some kind of psychosis already, it just exacerbates it and everything just snowballs essentially. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And, and delusion feeds delusion. So if you already have a delusional personality that's involved, this is why it's critical for mental health professionals to stay grounded, to, to see a counselor. Psychologists see psychologists all the time to make sure that they themselves have not developed something that's harmful to the client. And we use client now instead of patient. Okay. But the idea there is, is that if you have an unstable personality with an unstable personality, they'll feed off each other. Mm-hmm. And they'll actually meld stories into one grandiose story. It's interesting. One of the things I think when they look at the assessment for the reverend, um, when he was diagnosed at that point as having delusional behaviors of the schizophrenic type, I think that's interesting. When they use that terminology in the 70s, today that would be called delusional personality disorders. Uh -huh. And there's two types. There's several types of those delusions. There's grandiose and there's persecutorial. There are people who believe that they were sent on a special mission. And that's what I see in, what is it, I think it's Father Renz or Father Alt? Of Father Alt, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Father Alt sort of shepherded the mm -hmm. whole thing, and Renz actually conducted mm -hmm. the exorcisms. But Alt, in terms of when you say somebody being on a mission, I would say it was Father Alt for sure. Yeah, and Father Alt basically saw himself as a knight in shining armor. And I think I put this in the book. He saw himself as some kind of knight in shining armor who was going to go out and duke it out with the devil. And this delusion was fed by the behaviors he observed and interpreted them into that delusion. And then her own delusions began to develop. You see another delusion of being selected specifically by Mother Mary to suffer. You see these delusional, this delusional speech coming out. Yes. That's called paranoid schizophrenia. Paranoia has two different types of manifestation. It, it has actually several, but the two main ones are delusions of grandeur or delusions of persecution. Now, the difference between that is the person who says he has a mission, he's been talked to by God, he's got the tablets from Moses, he's going forth, he's a special person elevated above all others, and he has a secret, super secret mission or something along those lines. You can also have people who have delusions of being St. Jerome. This would be along the lines of paranoia of the grandiose type. If you get into persecution, these are the guys who I've seen at the emergency room and at a couple of clinics and in my own studies where they have literally the stereotypical tinfoil hat and they're convinced that aliens are listening to their thoughts, that the Chinese spies have inserted a chip in their brain, mm -hmm. all kinds of delusional constructs that are outside of things that are just absolutely absurd to the average person is a reality for that person. Now, when you put them all in a room, one of the interesting things, is, and that's, this is the reason why they don't, if you put them all in a room, they begin to meld their delusions and stories together until all three of them were abducted by aliens, traveled with Elvis off to so-and-so. I mean, I'm being funny with it, but the, the reality yeah, is the that, Elvis, that, that Elvis part's not funny. We all know he's still around. 
Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. <laughs> so it, it, you're like, you I know, have the to idea go. is, yeah, they'll, they'll meld together and right. they'll start feeding each other's delusions. And I really believe that that had a huge impact. Now, when it deals with right before Annalisa died, one of the postmortem reports, and one of the good things is, is I speak German too. Uh-huh. So I was able to, to kind of read some of these things for myself. When you look at the postmortem reports, which are not easy to get unless you're in science and you have to know somebody at some at the right. university in Bonn for me. Sure. But when you look at these postmortem reports, there are ligature marks across the throat. There are ligature marks across both wrists and both feet. She has fractured frontal teeth, not fractured molars. They, well, some molars were fractured, but the frontal teeth were fractured. She was emaciated. Blood samples showed that she was extremely dehydrated. She was a person who was starved literally to death, but the ligature marks, now now I'm speaking forensically as an abuse expert, these marks on her wrists and her hands, when you look at them, are absolutely identical to cases where I've seen children who were bound and beaten. There are bruises that go all the way down her back. She has contusions all the way down her back, all the way across the back thighs, all the way down to the feet. She has two black eyes. There was a notation in there considering what's called the zygotic process, which is a bone that creates the cheekbone on the right side, having been partially fractured. This isn't something that occurs when you're a, a demonically possessed person who's just thrashing around and yelling at people. This is a blunt force trauma. That is an injury that's created from a punch or from a bat or from something along those lines. You don't think it could have been created if she was out of control in the midst of possibly a a grand mal seizure, epileptic seizure or something like that? There is a possibility of that. The problem is, is the ligatures. Even in the 1970s, the one thing you don't do with an epileptic is you don't restrain them. They break more bones doing that than they do if you just let them experience what they're doing on the floor, clear everything around them away, and keep them as safe as possible while they're going through that episode. Right. And that's what we do at the clinic. When I'm over here doing my residency or I'm, I'm over doing an internship somewhere, that's what we do. When we see an epileptic, we have a grand mal seizure occur. There is a possibility when they hit the ground of fracturing something. But this, to me, when I examine it, and of course, a forensic anthropologist would probably be, or a, or a pathologist of something, would probably be a better expert on this. But from what I saw, based on what I had experienced and seen in other cases that were criminal. It was identical to a fist punch to the face. And I'll go to my grave unless I have another expert in that field that says, no, this is what you misinterpreted. But as far as I'm concerned, I have no doubt that she's been struck. Right. And I'll put money on it that the physician that examined her had the same conclusion when he tried to go and get that death certificate so fast. Yes, when, um, when her father wanted, tried to get the natural causes death certificate immediately, and which the examiner would not. Uh, absolutely would, not. Yeah, would not do. No, he wouldn't. And, and I wouldn't either. I would look at that and go, ooh, something bad happened. And there's always the possibility. That's also an indicative behavior. When I'm dealing, and again, I'm talking forensically or criminal justice side here. This is a behavior that when something accidentally happens and you panic to cover it up. Yes. That behavior falls right in line with, if I could break confidentiality rules, I would give you 100 cases of criminal cases that I've investigated in southern Atlanta alone. Sure. Where one of the parents or whoever was most responsible for that death was immediately trying to cover that because if they could have got her in the grave and had it determined right away, then there was no investigation. The problem is is that he brought more suspicion on himself by pushing the issue so hard 
than he would have if he'd have just let it go. So you're, you're, you sound like you're fairly convinced that she was physically abused, not just held down during an epileptic seizure or yeah. tied down during an epileptic, because let's say that she had epilepsy and she was having grand mal seizures that they were misinterpreting as possession. And because they talked about how Peter and Joseph and Taya's husband had to hold her down at one point, um, you don't think that any of that, of what you saw in those reports could be misinterpreted as an epileptic seizure happening on somebody who was unduly restrained? No, because if you look at the way that the ligatures are all, it, it indicates that she was tied in something like a chair. I mean, when you look at it, you can see yes. this evidence. It's, it's clear that if you put her body in a chair and put the ropes or the, whatever was used to restrain her across, you would see she was being tied by hand and feet to some type of sitting situation. Mm-hmm. So the zygotic process is on the front of the face. There is nothing she can strike that would cause that kind of fracture, that inward fracture. Right. If it was an upward fracture or a downward fracture, I would say maybe she hit the edge of a table or something like that. But this was blunt force straight in. Right. And there's an issue involved there that has to be looked at. And from the criminal investigator side of me, I would have automatically already been looking at that as a possible homicide from long-term abuse or, and this is just speculation because none of us will really know what happened those last months. None of us will. We can, we can only speculate and, and support our speculations with, with the evidence at hand. Right. But what that tells me is you ever heard of shaken baby syndrome? Of course. Yes. Okay. It's usually a male parent and the, child is crying and crying and crying and they're just and they lose it and they shake the baby really hard to where the brain and the brain stem sometimes snaps but the brain is literally banged against the inside of the skull until the yes. child dies Horrible. okay what's the first thing they do they call the ambulance and then they tell all these people these stories about what happened but the stories aren't true what really happened was he killed his child in rage yeah now if you've got a person who listened to those tapes and I can tell you from military experience, PSYOPs, I don't know if you've ever heard of PSYOPs, oh, but it's psychological you warfare. Have, you haven't heard our show, but we, oh, talk, about, yeah, we talk about PSYOPs. Yeah. Yes, have many, many times, yes. Well, that's really interesting because when I was in Bosnia, I actually worked with a PSYOPs team in Bosnia, and their goal was to convince the indigenous people that we were their friends, not their enemy, please stop blowing us up kind of thing. Sure. You'd be surprised how many times we stood on corners handing out newspapers that gave news reports that spoke highly of the, the U.S. presence there, you know, that kind of stuff. Yes. But there are some other elements, and I can tell you from my anti-terrorism experience, too, that there are some elements of interrogation that are very interesting in today's technology. One of the things that they could do to break an enemy's heart is to put up speakers. And in these speakers, they don't do anything but play at the loudest volume possible, a child crying or screaming or a bunch of gibberish like what you hear in those tapes. Right. It drives the enemy insane. They will actually attack each other. They will lose their mind trying to get relief from that noise. If you're hearing this growling, and, and I believe me, I hear it a lot when we take them back to the padded rooms, right? You know, we'll have to give them an injection to stabilize them. What the doctor does, I don't. But the doctor gives them an injection to stabilize them. And this growling and this different things like, I'm demonic, I'm going to kill you. I'm gonna... They're always saying that. I mean, I've gotten so used to it now that I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'll see you in an hour after the medicine kicks in. Right. <laughs> so, but if you're listening to that constantly, You've already got anger issues because of the PTSD. Now, let's just assume the PTSD is there. He, he fought on the Russian front, which was nasty, nasty. 
Mm-hmm. For our listeners, we're talking about Joseph, Annalisa's dad, right? Joseph. Yeah, we're talking about dad. Yeah. One of the concepts of PTSD is the fact that they have a hyperarousal and their threat response is triggered very easily. And when it's triggered, it's excessive. That's one of the reasons why a lot of PTSD patients, men, end up in jail for domestic violence because they do snap. Right. And that's one of the indicators that we have a person with PTSD, believe it or not, is a psychotic break like that. A violent psychotic break is the first thing that usually leads us to understanding this person has a PTSD issue. So if we're speaking hypothetically and, and with the highest probability, you got a guy who lost his mind, bashed her in the face, and that was the last straw before she died. There could have been some other internal damage as well. I'm sure that that's documented. I can't remember off the top of my head from those postmortem reports, but there was a lot of blunt force trauma on, the, on and throughout the body. It looked like she got pummeled. Right. And the bruises were pretty fresh. So they're not, you know, these weren't black and yellow bruises that were aged. That's one of the most interesting things about the forensic side of domestic violence is understanding how old a bruise is by the coloration of that bruise. Mm -hmm. When you're looking at bright purplish red centers, these are freshly ruptured capillaries and blood vessels that are bleeding. That's what a bruise is. It's just bleeding under the skin. Mm -hmm. When these contusions are created, when they're that fresh, you're within an hour or maybe a day, 12 hours at most of that injury. And a lot of these type of injuries were what were on her at the time that the postmortem was done, plus the fact that there were older bruises. So this was long-term abuse. That's how you can compute that. I mean, in in a court of law, that's how you bring it up to say this was a long-term scale of abuse. And this is why we can tell that. Uh, Well, you can tell a lot from the color of a bruise. I mean, it's surprising. It's amazing how many weeks you can say that you got that bruise six weeks ago because of whatever, or three weeks ago because of the color by the time it's turning yellow and stuff, it's, it's a very old bruise. Sure, sure. So these were fresh bruises mixed with old bruises. So this was a long-term affair. Could some of those contusions and maybe even fractures have occurred during epileptic seizures? Sure. She may have been in an epileptic seizure when dad snapped or when somebody else in there snapped. It could have been one of the priests for all I know. I wouldn't put that kind of trauma on a female aggressor because you have to be a pretty strong woman right. to, to do that kind of damage in a punch. But that doesn't mean that she didn't have a rolling pin. That's the stuff that disgusted me the most when I started getting near the end of her story. When I started understanding and I started pulling evidence out and started reading things and understanding. And I was looking at one of hundreds of cases I've investigated and assisted in prosecuting of homicides of the exact same nature. And that's when I said, this is where what priest in his right mind, and I think I put this in the book would allow that to happen to a point of death. Why would allow it to happen at all? Right. If you're seeing epileptic seizures, reason, even in 1976, should tell you, go to emergency room, get the doctor, get something done here. There is something wrong with the reason, with the ability to reason in the mind of that lead priest that needed needs treatment itself, or at that time needed treatment. He may have gotten better. I don't know. But at that time, that's telling me that a person has completely lost their ability to reason. There's no empathy there. Right. One of the primary things in in healthcare, one of the primary things in behavioral science as well as clergy is empathy and compassion. And empathy is being able to see the world through that other person's eyes as an explanation for their behavior. It doesn't mean that you agree with them, but it means that you're able to understand the reasoning 
and the perceptions of the individual you're dealing with as to why they're doing what they're doing. Compassion is something that is mandated by Christ himself. And that is where you see suffering, you need to alleviate that suffering. If it's physical suffering, you should alleviate that physical suffering. The body is just a vessel. It's dirt, says it in the Bible. It's a clay pot in which the soul is put. So let's talk about strategics, because one of the things that I thought was really fascinating Mm -hmm. about your book and your approach, given your background and your history, was how you laid out, I guess it's your law enforcement background, you just laid out this very precise really, really incredibly thorough approach to figuring out what you need to do to deal with a case like this. It's like you're preparing for a prize fight and the space program and possibly to be sued at the end of it all at once. <laughs> it's just, yeah. It's, yeah. there's a lot that goes into how you think this should be approached, right? And also right. to prevent mm-hmm. a misdiagnosis, like something that happened to Annalisa from happening again to somebody else. So you came up with a system. Right. It's a strategy. It's a, a model, a process that deals with the identification, and it goes through a step-by-step process. And this is the later half of the book, where it, this is what I call the boring part of the book. <laughs> I will. I thought I was fascinated it, with it. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's yeah. awesome. So it's the part that actually allows, it provides a guide that allows the demonologist or the priest or the pastor to cover all of the areas. When we look at the Rituale Romanum, the Roman Rite, uh, Volume 2, which is where the exorcism rite is contained, we see an area in there where it says to make sure that there are issues of melancholy or that this goes beyond issues of common melancholy or mental illness or depression. So that's very vague, and it doesn't give a whole lot of instruction to the priest or to the demonologist on what exactly are we supposed to be looking for and what are we supposed to be ruling out before we proceed with a determination of possession of demonic influence or molestation. So there's different levels there as well. This actually goes through that process. It starts off with assessment and determination, dealing with the person, it's person-centered, and dealing with that person's history. Now, that history would include developmental history, mental health history, and medical history. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that you can have something as simple as a thyroid condition. And hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism, two different conditions, one being too much and one being too little of the hormone, can actually cause psychosis, psychotic episodes and delusional thinking. It can actually cause that. And the minute you put them on some Synthroid or something along those lines, within a week, they're fine. Mm -hmm. So you want to be able to rule all of those out because psychiatry is medicine of psychology. It's the medicine of behavior, which we're going to deal with brain chemistry and traumatic brain injury. And we want to rule all of this out before we go any further. We also want to know this history because as you're going through the ritual, if you're dealing with a person who is going with, and as we had discussed earlier, the term of possession experience, there's going to be blood pressure hikes, there's going to be blood sugar hikes. You're going to want to know all of these things so that when you have that team member who's monitoring this, they know to look for that and they can say, okay, let's take a break when it reaches a point where the body has reached its limits before it becomes a crisis like it did with Annalisa. I think if we'd had a team like that with Annalisa, we would have never had a death. There would have always been somebody there to say, okay, hope stop, we're hitting the limits here. She needs to be eating. Starving and fasting does not get rid of Canaan, Fleischman, and all of these guys. Right. That is critical to ensure that this type of accident doesn't happen. And in fact, if you think about it, 
there was a Romanian sister, Mary C. Mary, yeah, Mary C. And this particular father, this particular priest, decided that she was possessed. The reality was is that she was absolutely concretely diagnosed with schizophrenia and was coming in and out of psychosis. So when she was on antipsychotic medications, yes. she was fine. When they took her off her medications at the convent, she began to go back into delusions, back into hallucinations. She relapsed into her symptomatic state. Now, in, in hospitals, we see this all the time. And what we do is we get them back on meds and stabilize them. In this case, they decided exactly like the Annalisa Michelle case that she was demonically possessed. They chained her in a basement to a crucifix and left her there in a basement. Yes. And she died. Yeah. Ugh. Horrible. I did. I was not familiar with that story till I read your book. Yeah, and so she died. They actually stuck a rag in her mouth <laughs> so she would stop screaming. Does that sound familiar? What we just discussed earlier. Yes. So yes. this type of cruelty gets justified by these rationalizations, these spiritual rationalizations that in themselves are evil. These cases have happened, and there's thousands of cases that have happened across the globe. And you can find them if you do newspaper searches and stuff like that. I found the ones that are in the book simply by looking for newspapers. Yeah, and that case was on just the, on the, 2005, the Romanian one. I mean, yes, relatively it was. recent, yes. Yes, and there are others. There was a gentleman whose son was on drugs, and he was having some very bad behavioral uh, issues. And he decided his son was possessed, and he tied him to a chair and started reading Bible verses, and he stuck a rag in the child's mouth and suffocated and died. And that's just another case. I mean, and it goes on and on. I'm sure if you looked right now, you'll see since 2011, when the book was published, 2012, when the book was published, you'll see that there are other cases out there. And the, and the reason that this procedure is put in place is to avoid that. One is, is that it's a standardized procedure that can be trained to clergy, that they can be certified in, that they can follow it does two things. One is that it ensures due diligence in two realms. Due diligence in the realm of Christ to do good, to be beneficial, and to be compassionate. The other due diligence is in a legal sense. You are doing everything you possibly can to ensure the safety and well-being of this person. And when you detect something aside from the religious idea and can be treated in the scientific medical area, then you have an obligation legally to do that. It's an ethical obligation. But you have a, a higher obligation, and that obligation is the obligation of your ordination from Christ. You are ordained to be compassionate, to exercise Christ's compassion. If he needs healing, then he's taken to be healed. If he needs exorcism, then you do exorcism. But if you'll notice, all of these exorcism rituals that usually end up with someone dying is a ritual that is bizarre in itself. It's almost a satanic ritual in itself. <laughs> when right. you look at to tying her to a basement and all of these things, look at the New Testament and you look at the story of the legion. Do you remember the demoniac in the cemetery story? I do not. Christ came to a cemetery and in this cemetery was a demoniac. And a demoniac is a person that's possessed by demons. And Christ came up and he ordered them to stop and they were in fear of Christ, which would be rightly so. <laughs> and they said, please don't cast us out. They were begging him, and he, he cast them out. He said, leave. They left the demoniac and entered into the bodies of pigs, and the pigs ran into the water and drowned. When he asked him the demon's name, the demon said, we are legion. Yes. Oh, the legion yes, yes. So 
this story, and I'm not getting it for 100% accurate, it's, been, it's sad, but I, I really need to start writing more sermons so that I keep on top of this. But the idea is that Christ commanded, and they did. When you are a priest and you are ordained, or you're a preacher and you have received orders, you speak in the name of God. You order in his name, and they do. There is no need for some special ritual. You don't have to chain them to a wall to a crucifix. It's not the crucifix that's going to save them. That's a trinket. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to save them, and that is invited in. That has to be brought in through prayer and through unity and compassion. It's not strapping them to the basement and leaving them there to die. That's not exorcism. That in itself is a sacrifice almost if you look at some satanic manuals, you'll see that's almost a sacrifice in itself. It's almost a Black Sabbath, is it not? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if you go into it, it's almost a Black Sabbath. So who's the demon there? The mentally ill person or the tormentor of the mentally ill person? Well, do you think that that situation presents an opportunity for something entirely different going on that people are looking in the wrong place when they look at the victims in these cases? Might be. Now that, you would definitely pique my interest on Because now we're getting into strategic versus tactical possession. And these are terms that I coined, and it comes from my military experience between tactical engagement and strategic planning. Uh Again, we're going back to the clay pot, the body as a vessel. When it dies, it returns to dirt. Inside that vessel is the soul, and it's that soul that matters. And what's rather that soul does evil or good or sin or recovery or good things, it's the soul. It's that conscious entity that comprises what's inside us that is important. That is what must turn away from God. The body acts in accordance with that entity, that soul. In fact, the word psychology, psyche, means soul. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. It does. When you look up the word psychology, the history of psychology, when you look into it, psyche means soul. It's the study of the soul, study of the spirit, psychology. And so that spirit on the inside is what has to turn against God in order to be condemned. If another spirit steps into that clay pot and the clay pot goes out and does all kinds of bizarre things, rolls around, smashes up other pots, whatever, but the soul that's being pushed aside is not willfully doing this, then there has been no willful turn against God. In order for that soul to be condemned, It has to turn against God and do sinful, offensive things. So it does no good to possess the pot, the body, when the body doesn't matter. It's the soul that matters. So in what I call a tactical situation is just Susie Q, the farmer's daughter, is less likely to be possessed directly by a demon because there's nothing strategically gained by it. All of us are in greater danger of demonic influence than we are demonic possession or even demonic molestation. We are in greater danger of influence. Now, from the strategic point of view, so in a tactical point of view, just arbitrarily possessing people is just inviting St. Michael and his angels to come in and whoop up on you. What do you gain? Nothing. No tactical, no strategic advantage. And the devil and all his demons are not stupid. They're not. Where they need to gain, they need those souls to turn against God, like his own legion of angels did in heaven in that great civil war up there. So he doesn't gain anything by destroying a body. But if he can possess one pot, and that pot is the popular pot, 
the popular person. Let's say we have a Stalin, a Mao, a Hitler, who can now with his tongue, like the Pied Piper, pull in willful people. We'll use Adolf Hitler as an example. He was able to convince millions of people to murder millions of innocent people willfully. They did this willfully. They didn't do this because a demon was whispering in their ears. They did this because they had convinced themselves that what they were doing was right and righteous and whatever. It's the entire concept of the revelation or the apocalypse of John of Patmos. The Antichrist is going to do exactly that same thing. The only way that a soul can be condemned is when that soul willfully turns against the will of God, rejects him, and works against him. You should look for strategic possession, and this is why I say in the book that possession is very rare. It's rare because it only serves a strategic advantage. It does not serve anything tactical. What they need are those souls and those pots to turn against God and be condemned by God. Then they're his to consume at will, like grapes on the vine. But the pot itself, the vessel, the body, is irrelevant, unimportant. It dies. It decays. It goes away. It withers. But the soul lives on. It's that soul he wants, not that body. So if you can march uh, a million people into a great army that invades other countries, that rapes, pillages, murders, wholesale like cattle slaughter in Auschwitz, and places like that, the gulags of Stalinism. If you have this kind of behavior going on, you have souls making the pots do the soul's will, and that soul's will is against God. These are condemned souls. The evil guy at the top who's possessed, he was already there. He was already his. It's all these other people that have to be careful. That's one of the reasons why Christ says, beware of false prophets. Right. Because a false prophet will lead you into bad things. So we, as a mass of humanity, are spiritually in danger of influence, of acting on bad information, of being convinced of something that isn't true and believing that it is. That's where our danger is for me and you and the guy next door. We are in danger of being influenced, of following a false prophet into the drowning in the river. So possession itself should always be regarded as extremely rare. For instance, you may not know this, but did you know that the Pope at the time during World War II did a remote exorcism for Hitler, trying to exorcise the demon out of him? I did know that, but you know why I knew it? Because I read it in your book. (laughs) I didn't know it. Oh, yeah. It's in there somewhere. You've probably even forgotten, but it was in there. Yeah. Yeah, he did perform an exorcism from far. That is probably a true demonic possession. Something like that would certainly be because you're destroying one vessel, but you're gaining how many millions of souls? How many people were SS officers? How many were Gestapo? How many ran the ghettos in Warsaw? Think about all those souls are in hell now. They're the grapes on the vine that the devil plucks and eats at will. That is where possession becomes strategically advantageous to the devil. It serves him no purpose on the individual. So, I was watching TV the other night. Oh, should I alert the media? (laughs) All right, take it easy, smart guy. You're probably just amazed either of us has any time to watch any TV. That I am. Uh, So, what'd you see? Well, I saw an ad by one of the major shaving razor companies, and guess what they're offering now? Oh, yeah, I saw that too. They're now offering uh, home delivery, but I think it's just their blades. Yeah, guess who had a total home delivery model years ago? Why, Harry's, of course. 
Sounds like the big guys are getting a little worried about their market share. Well, I don't doubt that at all. It's where the marketplace is moving to. But companies that make a great product in their own factory, like Harry's, can sell directly to the consumer over the internet, deliver right to their door, cut out the distribution and -and brick-and-mortar middlemen, and as a result, the buyer ends up getting a really close and comfortable shave for a very fair price. With Harry's, there's no reason anymore to go to the store, wait for a security guard to open the razor blade vault, then pay twice the price for the same quality shave you get from a Harry's razor. I have not purchased a big-name brand since I started with Harry's over three years ago. Well, you ain't the only one, because over three million guys have switched to Harry's for those very same reasons. In fact, Harry's is so competent you'll want to make the switch, too, that they'll give you their trial shave set for free when you sign up at harrys.com slash legends. You just pay the three bucks for shipping. That's a $13 value for free when you sign up. Listen to everything you get with your free trial offer. A weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision German-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. And again, all you have to do is cover the $3 for shipping. You've got nothing to lose except that nasty stubble. Get your free trial set right now by going to harrys.com slash legends. That's harrys.com slash legends. I'm Sheree Cardoza, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. What I wanted to know, and you mentioned even at the top of this phone call that you had been involved Mm -hmm. in 12 investigations, I believe. I'm presuming that since you were involved in those, you tried to assemble the team of people that and, and follow the methodology that you yourself describe in your book. That's a lot of people that you're bringing into the investigations. It is. Yeah. It's really, really difficult to get professionals to do that because, again, like we were talking earlier, it's the pilot who saw the UFO. Nobody wants to report that. And it is difficult to put together a team like that. There are, and some of the best places I've met physicians who are willing to help with my team is I just went to a church, put out an announcement that I was hoping to talk to a physician who would be willing to do some spiritual work. That's how I ran into the one that that works with me or worked with me the most. Mm -hmm. It actually helped me with developing that procedure, that approach. Is it fair to say, technically, that you consider yourself an exorcist? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, or at least a demonologist. A demonologist. Um, How do people find you if they need your help? How do they know? Is it like the A-team? They have to meet somebody at a restaurant or? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's not like CIA drop, you know, yeah, Yeah. drop things. Dead drops. They can usually contact me. I have a Facebook page usually. Believe it or not, I get Facebook messages. And that's the best way to do it. It's just John and Duffy on Facebook. And they usually send me messages and and I message back and then see what I can do. Right. In some cases, what I'd like to do, and this would probably be interesting. So if you have any listeners who are interested, I can probably, if you want, allow them to send you some messages that you can relay to me. It would probably be easier that way. Okay. But if they were interested in getting trained in this methodology, I'd be more than happy to create a, a conference and we could all come together and, and I can go over this step-by-step procedure, how to create the case file, how to pursue the case, how to step out and find team members that are in particular professional areas that are useful to ensure safety and ensure everything, to find spiritual leaders who are of a level that's not impugned. And what I mean by impugned is, is that one of the things that I think was most dangerous, and I think any of the other exorcists would agree with me, is to have a priest who is 
soiled, spiritually soiled. Mm-hmm. The right of confession hasn't been followed. Um, absolution hasn't been received. Something along these lines. You have a person who's seeking profit instead of exercising compassion. These are sinful areas that can make it very dangerous for the priest himself when you're dealing with a demonic presence. Have I seen cases? I've seen a couple that I'm quite certain uh, you could flip a few chapters in my book. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've seen a couple that do go into UPA and EPA, which are the extra physiological strengths and the ultra physiological strengths. And yeah, you know, extra physiological being they can twist into knots, into positions that I think would fracture a yoga expert. I mean, these contortions go beyond what you would see in epilepsy. They, they completely ungodly, like bending in half backwards, where literally the head is touching the ankles or the calves, uh-huh. that kind of stuff. You've personally seen that? I have seen that happen in one case, yes. Okay. And I was convinced at that point that could not possibly be a muscular spasm. There's no way that it would contract that far without fracturing or breaking something. But at the end of the process, the person was back out. Now, there are going to be some people out there that are going to explain that and say that this was still some type of psychosis. I don't think so. There were some things in there, like, for instance, this particular client, well, I say patient, I'm still old school, I like to say patient. This particular patient was speaking in Farsi, for Pete's sake, like Afghan language or, or, or in Urdu, Hindi uh-huh. language, and has never in her life been in either of those countries or even exposed to people that speak it well enough for her to speak that as well as she did. Wow. So that does happen. But before we could determine, we still had to go through and rule out all of these other areas. And then when we were left with just EPA and UPA, UPA and, and EPA, and you'd see in the book what the definitions are for that, but it's basically these super strengths, like extra physiological and super, well, super physiological is where they can go into the knot, the ultra physiological. And the EPA is actually super strength. The 90 pound girl who can pick up the 200 pound person and throw him across the room like ragdoll. Right. These are things that you're not going to see in psychosis. I've seen young ladies in psychosis and severe mental illness take on some orderlies and really give them, you know, but they never did anything like this where the guy is literally, it's almost like you'd watch the Spider-Man movie or something. The guy just goes flying. Right. This can't be real. Right. So, and there are different ways to perceive that. There are different perspectives on that. But for me, in that case, and that was one out of many, the rest I could literally narrow down to mental illness, or or in one case, it was total fabrication. So in this one case, and like I said, it's a rare thing, in this one case, I could definitely say that the patient was experiencing possession. I won't go into the details of how this may have been invited, because I'm not sure myself. None of us could quite figure that part of his history out. What has he been doing that would expose him or make him vulnerable or make him interesting or a target? to be possessed. He wasn't a popular person. He wasn't a super rich person. This was one of those cases where they would say it was random. But that doesn't mean that there was some ulterior motive that we're just completely incapable of comprehending right now. We don't know. Have you ever heard of something called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis? <laughs> well, you're talking about disruptive neuronal connections. and It's a membrane that goes over the brain that gets inflamed. It's usually by a bacterial infection. Yes. That can cause 
behavioral and functional disruption. I mean, that would definitely be a good medical doctor or neurologist question. Right. It's new to me. Our, we have a research group with about 50 or 60 people in it, and um, about 20 of them are highly active. And they had discovered this, and they seemed to find cases where some of the symptoms were remarkably similar to what you might classify as possession in terms of the physical symptoms that displayed themselves. But I don't even know enough about it now to, we're, we're still looking into it, to ask you questions about it. I mostly wanted to know if it was something you were familiar with, because I'm, I'm not really. Yeah, I'm familiar with the disease of encephalitis, which is just basically an inflammation of the tissue around the brain. But that can cause some very serious mental illness in itself. It can cause transient psychosis. It can cause death. As far as superhuman strength, though, I would be very interested to speak with or to listen to a lecture from physicians that know about that, because that could be a possible scientific explanation. It should be included in the process of examination. Sure. It felt like you said that you were saying that you had one case that you were convinced was possession. Was Does that mean for you, mm -hmm. technically, you're in a, a 1 in 12 scenario, or are you talking about cases that you've been exposed to that you didn't necessarily weren't the one involved in? Um, well, yeah, no, it's 1 in 12 for using this model. Right. There are other cases that I've investigated, especially poltergeist investigations where you're dealing with demonic molestation. Uh -huh. These are attacks, physical attacks on the, on the person of someone. And these are usually used to break down the person to make them a willing. That's a whole different can of worms in comparison to possession. It could be to wear the person down to possess, but most likely isn't. This is something to make this person do. This person becomes a complicit person through molestation and abuse. In those cases, I have seen clearly. Now, there is some scientific research. I think Harvard did some really good studies on the idea of a person who perceives injury that actually didn't happen. They'll develop welts on the skin that match an injury that would come from that perceived impact, although that impact never actually happened. It was all created in the lab. So there are some situations like that. What I witnessed, I don't think is that case. I think I sat, and the reason I say that is, is that in those cases, usually the person felt the injury, and then the welt appeared. Right. In these cases, I observed, the injury occurred, and then they reacted to the injury, which to me would be consistent with the physical object hitting and the response, the neuronal channels, and the response, you get scratched. Sometimes you can get hit, and you'll look down and see your, that your finger's cut, and then you respond, oh my gosh. Right. In the cases in, the, in these laboratory experiments, what I saw was they were convinced of the injury first, and then the mimic of the injury showed on the skin. Right. This isn't what's happening. What I'm seeing is real world. It's happening, and then they're responding to it. It's like you slap a person. Let's say you, you're with your buddies at the sports bar, and you slap him real hard on the back. Does he react before the slap or yeah. after the slap? Of course. Yeah, after the slap. It's after the slap. So that would be a real world hit versus if you've convinced yourself you've been hit and then all of a sudden the symptoms show up a few seconds after you believe you were hit. Right. But that's how the laboratory experiments were working. And it was really interesting research, but that's not what's happening in those cases. And in those cases, definitely I believe that there was poltergeist activity and I absolutely have absolutely no doubt. Although I had no methodology at the time for measuring it all, I do now. What would you say is some of the most frightening or the most unusual stuff you've ever personally witnessed? I think the contortions scared me to death. I honestly thought that that person had had some kind of stroke or something, uh -huh. but the spasm went so far back, I was convinced that that person had just broken their back. You could hear it cracking. It was awful. 
it was scary. It was terrifying. And I, and I was trying to put a halt to it, blowing the whistle, as I call it, when we're saying, okay, stop, shut everything down. We're gone. You know, we need to get an ambulance or something here. Right. <laughs> right. And she didn't feel anything. She kept talking. Wow. I had to get a friend of mine that spoke uh, Farsi to interpret. And I thought, holy Moses. And when you talk about demoniacal experience and interaction with humanity, it goes back to prehistory. You can find every culture has them under a different name. In the Middle East, you have the jinn, you know, what we call a genie. But the jinn was a demon. It still is considered a demon, and they're very, very evil. You have cherubim and demons. Which, you, know, you have all of these different things that are capable of cruelty on humanity, depending on the circumstance. You have the ghosts and spirits of Buddhism. You have demons in Hinduism. They're everywhere, all the way around the world. Even in small tribal religions that are indigenous only to these small tribes and wherever part of the world, Africa, South America, etc., you find experiences of this sort. So there's a lot of social evidence that goes cross-culturally that shows that there's some commonality that should not be ignored. Does a person have to have faith? Can an atheist be possessed? Can an agnostic be possessed? Are there rules about that? Have there ever been cross-faith possessions where any record of a, a Buddhist being possessed by something that took on more of a, a Catholic demeanor to it? Or, or is there, have there ever been anything like that? That's very interesting. I have not witnessed that, but I have read about it. And now I'm trying to think of this priest's name. He was in Tibet. It was in the 50s, I think. And he was one of those who, and it, like me, was researching the philosophy of Buddhism and comparing it to the teachings of Christ, which, wow, is amazingly similar. It's almost like two celestial beings came to earth at two different millennia mm -hmm. but the, and said the same message, just in different ways. In this case, this particular priest has some correspondence that was published. I read it in a library in Columbus, Georgia. I'll have to find it and get it to you so you can get a copy and read it. Sure. Um, it's an older book. But it talks about possession, where the demonic entity did cross a cross. Uh -huh. And there were two priests. There was a monk and the priest there. And as the exorcism ritual was going on, it did enter into this other individual. So it can cross. One of the things I think that we forget is that religion itself is a construct of humanity. Faith is a construct of God. And faith is expressed in different ways in different places by different people. But it's all reverence for the same thing, a great creator. So in this case, the spiritual realm is the same realm. We're just looking at it differently. And certainly it can go from body to body and faith to faith. You don't have to be a Christian to be possessed. You could be a Buddhist. You could be an atheist or you could be agnostic. Agnostic is a great position to be in if you want to be influenced. That's definitely a bad position to be in to be influenced. It's more of an agnostic state because you're you're not questioning, you're, you're basically, we are questioning, you're, you're curious. Curiosity can sometimes be a bad thing when it comes to false prophets. This is where your cults and dangerous environments like that get created. Seekers. We had a couple of our listeners who are some of our more active followers on Twitter today uh, that were debating that. Uh, Jeanette Farrell and Nate McHugh uh, both listened to the show, and I had told them that I was going to ask you about that, the question I just asked you, basically. Because Jeanette has been a practicing Buddhist for decades, and she had yeah. uh, apparently, she said, and I quote, my source for information on Buddhism is the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying by Sogyal Rinpoche. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly, but, and then she said... Yeah, you said it right. Okay, good. And yeah, then she she's said, a monk. Very famous monk. 
she said, I've studied and practiced this philosophy for decades. I was also raised Catholic and rejected it as it was used as a political tool in my family's home country, which I'm not sure where Jeanette's from. She said, a Catholic priest jokingly told her that a good reason I could explain to my boyfriend's Christian mother as a reason for giving it up was that since only Christians can be possessed by the devil, that seems too risky to follow. So I chose a philosophy that doesn't have a devil. And she said the priest was Irish and had a great sense of humor. <laughs> but, but based on Yeah, what that you... sounds is <laughs> a joke. That's a great joke. But yeah. the, the reality is, and I think what he's inferring in the joke is, is that it really doesn't. What's in your heart, what that soul is up to is what matters. If there's one thing that if you're going to look at Christo-Buddhist faith, and believe it or not, there is a such thing as Christo-Buddhist faith, which is a combination of the belief in God through the Christian perspective and the following of Christian philosophy melded with the meditative techniques and the philosophies of the Buddha. And one of the things I like about studying theology is that I really define theology as the study of religions versus the study of a God of a religion. Right. And a lot of people mistake in that. When you talk about theology from the anthropological point of view, you study all religions. And it's fascinating to see their similarities. And when you can look at that broad picture and look at how similar they are, they really are rotating around one central great entity, one great central energy. You know, some may define it as chi. Some may define it as the Holy Spirit. The others may define it as the rays of Allah. But it is in agreement. There is something there we recognize immediately, deep in our hearts, deep in our souls. And that's what matters. These bodies we walk around in are just clay pots. When they die, they're going to rot. It's just like a pot. You're going to crush it, and it'll go right back into its clay form. That's the important thing to remember. Yes, you can be influenced by malicious entities. You know, the guy that invented the spaghetti monster thing, you yes. know, is a joke. Right. The spaghetti monster guy could get possessed. Sure. Right. Yeah, it can go cross call. It doesn't recognize that. It recognizes the spiritual energy in our center. And so for her, I would say she probably has concepts of the chakras, energy points on the body that allow chi to come in and out and things of that nature. So you can, in this case, yes. And as a matter of fact, Buddhists do have a means of exorcism of their own. It would be interesting. I think there's a place in New York. There's a Buddhist institute in New York. I have to think of the name. You can look it up online, though, but it allows you to communicate with Tibetan monks that are stateside. Mm -hmm. And they can tell you the rites. It's like the Book of the Dead. It's the rite of the dead when Tibetan monks come and sing the rites that tell the soul how to proceed to the next life. They have a procedure. So, yes, they recognize demonic entities, and they recognize the influence and the, the havoc that they can wreak. And then they do remove demons through their own ritual rite process. One of the things I think is interesting about Buddhism and Hinduism is that they will, and they do acknowledge the fact that there could be medical conditions that mimic it. That's what really surprises me, is how advanced they are in that regard. It doesn't matter what your faith is, it matters the condition of your soul and your vulnerability. Well, John, I just can't thank you enough for the time you've given us and our listeners tonight. It has truly been a pleasure talking to you. Honestly, I could keep going with questions and we could probably talk another couple hours, but it's uh, unrealistic for a variety <laughs> of reasons. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just wanted to thank you so much for your time and for appearing on our show. 
Sure. Well, I wanted to thank you for, for inviting me. I mean, this was an interesting conversation, probably one of the best I've had in a long time. Well, I'm glad uh, because I, I would like it to be uh, beneficial for both of us and as opposed to you just having to sit down for two hours and lose time to be doing other things. So I, I'm glad that it was uh, entertaining for you as well. And I imagine we're going to have a whole lot of questions come in. So I have your email address. Maybe I'll pass some along to you as they come into us because our listeners write into us all the time daily. If they're serious about uh, learning the model and applying it, I have absolutely no problem with teaching it and, 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 and assisting them with learning it and applying it. Okay. But they have to be serious. <laughs> uh, yes, I understand that. I, I can imagine. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. All right. I look forward to it. Well, that was one of the most interesting resumes I think I've ever come across. What a fascinating job history he's had and a really interesting guy. I loved uh, listening to him. You guys converse uh, about all that and he makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's really hard to argue with his expertise in the field and his experience and all the study he's done and actually real world experience, but he's coming at it from so many different angles and he's really... Put it together well, I think, is, you know, to round out his analysis and, you know, his observations here. Yeah, his worldview has clearly been shaped by a lot of disparate experiences. And for a lot of the talk that we did about PTSD, I'm fascinated that he doesn't have it. Considering the things that he's seen and the places he's been, he seems pretty well adjusted and he's got his head clearly wrapped around how it all works together for him. And I think a lot of what he said makes a lot of sense. And that's what I like about our show. I have to tell you, I was a bit concerned that you could hear me gulp on the microphone when he said <laughs> agnostics were a perfect target for demons. <laughs> well, no, I love that. Here, here's I mean, my by point. By the way, he, yeah. he did not, he had no idea what my personal, and I don't even know if I'm technically an agnostic anymore, but. Yes, yeah, so you're, you're um, the Q, you're the, you're the questioning I'm, or the Q Yeah, I'm leaning, no, I'm leaning more towards religion than I used to be, but I. Yes, I will say um, that, yeah. I imagine that he'll get a chuckle out of that because I he was like, no, agnostics are because I was talking about our listeners who were debating on Twitter about whether or not someone with no faith could be possessed. Right. Of course, in my mind, I'm like, uh, well, I'm a little bit agnostic. <laughs> I'm trending more faithful these days. Yeah. And uh, and I was thinking that I was pretty safe because I was off the spectrum there. But he's like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> hey, well, that's why I love that quote from the movie, The Right, Choosing not to believe in the devil won't protect you from him. So, yeah, because yeah. here's the thing: if there is a spirit world, and that's a, you could choose not to believe any of that. I have a couple of comments about that, but you could choose not to believe any of that. Well, if there is a spirit world, it doesn't care what you believe. And yeah. and if I were on the other side and a <laughs> demoniac, if I were, you know, some kind of negative force, guess who the first person I would love to mess with would be. Is the guy, yeah. I don't believe any of this, I don't believe any of this. I hear it from so many people, and, I, and I'm sure you do too. Maybe not so much of us together as a show, but just in conversing with people and when they write us letters and just and just people I know, they, they will say like, I'm an agnostic or I'm, I'm basically an atheist, but I won't go to the graveyard at night or I won't. Yeah. Spirits freak me out. Like, well, why would you care if you don't believe in any of that? You know, right. and, and so that's what's funny is I think it's a little bit of people whistling through the graveyard. Really, they're not sure. They don't want to believe in that because it freaks them out. And, and it may go against all of their just personal beliefs and reasoning. And that's fine. We're all each on our own uh, journey here, whether you're spiritual or not. 
But it's just funny how, again, I hear that from so many people. Like, I don't believe in ghosts, but I'm not going to that place at night. You know, that that place <laughs> creeps me out. Like, well, <laughs> I mean, maybe there's muggers there. I'd be, you know, wary and a little scared of that. But if you don't believe in any of the spirit world, why, why do you care? <laughs> well, <laughs> but they yeah. Do. And, and that's one of the things I love about our show, or at least our audience base. They seem like they come from all walks of life. I feel like yes. we have devout Christians. We have people from other faiths as well. And we also have agnostics and we have atheists too, because yeah. they've written to us. Yeah. And everybody's on board. And that's, you know, we've always wanted to be a crossover show for the bigger picture of all this kind of stuff. So we're, we're glad to have you all here. I did want to remind our audience about the titles of both of John's books, if you want to check them out. The one we read before this interview was Lessons Learned, The Annalisa Michel Exorcism. And he also mentioned his second book, which sounds interesting, I haven't read, called Science and Religion, A Contemporary Perspective. And you can find both of those at his publisher's website, which is WIPF and Stock. Uh, <laughs> it's a, it's <laughs> yeah. a strange word, so I'll spell yeah. it out for you. WIPF is W-I-P-F. So it's W-I-P-F and Stock. Dot com. So both those books there are there, and the Annalisa book is also available on Amazon.com. Now, Forrest, you had a few questions of things that I didn't necessarily get to with John, right? Yeah, it's a couple of things we've all, well, you and I have been thinking about since we started looking into this story, especially because this one has so much of a neurological pharmacological and psychological angle to it with psychiatry. As John really pointed out, it's the medical aspect of psychology, psychiatry here. Yes. And we were looking over what they were giving Annalisa as far as anticonvulsants, antidepressants, you know, her whole range. And sometimes it works, you know. And so what, what I was listening to when John was mentioning it is that I think with the nun, when you were talking about the Romanian nun or the one who was clearly in his mind – just schizophrenic, with a delusional schizophrenic diagnosis that he saw was very clear and obvious that, and maybe not possessed at all, and the antipsychotic medications were working. But here's my question. I always put it as various levels. If you accept column A, if you accept column B, but not C, you know, if you accept that possession is real, there is possibly some demonic influence possible with people, but also uh, actual earthly grounded neurological problems that people are having, actual diseases, can the medication, the our worldly pharmaceuticals, have any effect on the demonic influence? Meaning, okay, so the anticonvulsants can keep you from thrashing around and hurting yourself, and they calm you down. And, and with Annalisa's case, she can go back to playing tennis and going back to her studies. Yes, she's still tired, and all the medications have a bad you know, some bad side effects associated with them. But I guess my question is, can the pharmaceuticals have any influence over this spiritual incursion? Do you, you understand what I'm saying? Is like, can, yes. can the pharmaceuticals actually battle the demons, to put it simply? Well, you know, I asked John about that, and this was his response. Tranquilizers can have an influence on the body itself because it suppresses the peripheral and central nervous system. Psychotropic medications, however, only affect those brain chemistry elements such as serotonin or dopamine. So this would not interfere with a demonic possession situation. That was his response to that right, question. Right. So It's fascinating because you wonder, yeah, you're doing battle with something that's ethereal using chemistry. <laughs> yeah. And where does that yeah. draw the line? Because and where it's really important, why this question matters is because that's partially, maybe to a large part, how you're diagnosing this person, especially for somebody like him who does believe in the spiritual realm, does believe in spiritual demonic molestation and full-out possession, 
And there's varying levels, but you're making a decision based on like, well, from a scientific point, this pharmaceutical A seems to be working. Therefore, you make this conclusion. Well, how much is it the medications working and curing what's there? And and then how much is actually there if it is spiritual? Again, he's looking at it from the past. You know, this, right. this happened. He, he wasn't there. She's not an actual patient or client as, you know, whatever term you want there. But it's something that it's, it's hard to do. Now, he's got a great insight on it and that, he, again, from his experience and, and all of his study, sure. it's ticking off all the checklist that uh, counts towards some kind of PTSD mixed with abuse, mixed with all these psychological problems, and not so much possession. The next question that that begs is whether or not what was happening with her or anyone else in this case could be a combination of both a possession and a mental illness working together. And that's something I also got to ask him about off the record. We didn't talk about it in the interview, but we were chatting a lot via email and text. And he said that it was entirely possible to say that demonic influence was at play with Annalisa. However, the primary diagnosis would still be mental illness. And it would be very difficult to distinguish or even separate those two from each other. So from his point of view, it's not impossible that those two things might be working in conjunction, I guess. If it is just psychological, psychiatric in nature, it's really extreme. But if you talk to John, what he just said is like, you know, I routinely hear crazy voices from people. Yes. You know, I routinely see thrashing and, and violence. And so, yeah, on his scale, it has to be off the charts. Like he was talking about the convulsing, somebody bending backwards all the way, touching their heels. Yeah. It's like, that yeah. is okay. And like he, even he, who has seen everything around the world and all these war zones and all of his experience, okay, that is off the charts. And I think that's where he draws the line. It's like, okay, now we're talking about something otherworldly happening here. And that's one of the things that's really fascinating about his book. When he was talking about the boring part of the book, and I actually thought it was really fascinating, he came up with an entire system for safely deducing what you're dealing with when you're facing somebody that whose loved ones or they themselves think might be possessed and or mentally ill. Because for him, when you're coming into that situation, there's no preconception. There's no prejudgment. It's time to figure out what's actually going on here and then take the appropriate course of action. The difference in his case is that he has more options for dealing with what's going on. So he's not necessarily going to have to say, this is mental illness, that's all it is, and that's specifically what we're going to deal with when, in fact, he might be dealing with a possession, if you believe in possession, yeah. and, or, or vice versa. It's having the one person at the top of the chain who says, all right, this is the course of action that we should probably take, but we need to be dead sure about this, and we need to have people monitoring every aspect of this person's health throughout this process, regardless of how we're dealing with it, making sure that they are protected from harm, and also that you ultimately are protected legally in the long run if it's something you're going to be doing on a regular basis. And it's just a really interesting approach. And one thing that I absolutely want to make clear that we are not doing on the show is we're not saying that all people that are mentally ill have any sort of evil thing going on or are possessed. Or we're not saying that at all. We right, are, And right. I want that to be absolutely clear because I know that it's a, it's a sensitive area, and, and rightfully so. We also 
are not saying that all people that might be possessed are strictly mentally ill. That's Exactly. We never try to tell you what to think. I mean, you know, maybe there's a little bit of persuasion in that we want you to just listen to what we have to say or our conclusions, but we're never going to try and tell you what you should think or make a solid decision like, well, this is it, you know, mystery solved in a way. But yeah. we're never going to try and divert you from your personal beliefs, thoughts, and rationality. All I would want you to do, you the listener out there, is expand your set of possibilities, is just of consideration. That's the hardest thing for a human being to do, is to consider the possibilities that you don't believe in. If you're going to be skeptical, be skeptical of everything. And mostly be skeptical of the things you already believe in. But yes, this is a very sensitive area, especially when it comes to mental health, and especially with families and family dynamics and child rearing. Yeah. Yeah, these are all hot points here. There's a real juxtaposition between Dr. Goodman's book, and and by the way, I feel like we might have failed to mention her, that she had a master's in linguistics. I think we did, but I, and but she also had a doctorate in cultural anthropology, and I'm afraid we might have left that out when we first discussed her. So I, and I want to thank John for reminding me that she held that doctorate. I would have loved to had the opportunity to interview her as well. I mean, she, you know, she passed away in 2005, so we're unable to do that. But, you know, I love taking the perspective we got from her book on the case, which inspired the movie and The Exorcism of Emily Rose. And, the, and then also considering John Duffy's perspective too, which while he respected her work immensely, he felt that she was off the mark with regard to Annalise's diagnosis. And I use the word diagnosis with those caveats that John mentioned in the interview. The thing about John, and we don't work blue on our show, but frankly, he has seen some stuff. I mean, <laughs> yeah. seriously, yeah. I mean, yeah. mass graves, war crimes, it's just unreal. And I believe him very much when he says he has seen evil in person. And I don't take his talk of shadows on those battlefields lightly. Yeah, exactly. I, well, l- let me ask you this then. We haven't come to our part three, which will be the, the final conclusion show or, or portion of this topic here overall. But before that, I just wanted to say he is making his conclusions post-mortem, you could say, after the case. But he's looking at, you know, he said he was getting some post-mortem uh, documents from his connection in Bonn, Germany. And he's able to look at stuff that we don't have access to, you the listener and, uh, and us as the host of the show. But that is his professional opinion. Now, he does say, ultimately, yeah, he will never know. We will never know what actually happened in that family, whether it was she was being actually beaten, tied down, physically abused, mentally or physically by her parents, or what really the family dynamics are, or what happened during the exorcisms. But that is his conclusion from what it looks like, from what he has gathered. So he does make it clear he does not know. I'm sure he wouldn't disagree with this. You can't fully diagnose somebody until you've met with them and they have been your client or patient. So you need that physical interaction to be there, and it's hard to do from a distance in either time or space. So I just want to make that clear. But getting back to the other point here, I don't know how you felt about this, Scott, but it is kind of, I guess you call it the Saturday Night Crime Show syndrome here, 48 Hours Mystery or Dateline, where it's just like, 
you know, they plan these out. Look, they, the producers know what's going on. The first half of the show is like, oh, that guy's guilty. Look at all this evidence. And then it's like, wait a second, maybe not. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, I don't know about you. I was going to ask you about your, how you felt or how, if your mind is changing a little, but certainly after this fantastic discussion and great interview, by the way, you did a, a great job in my, oh, uh, thank you. in my opinion. That was fun. Yeah. Was fun. No, no. He, he was an easy interview. He's easy yeah, to no, talk I would love to, I would have loved to have had the opportunity to, to chat with this guy, like even off the record. He's just, I, I really, uh, was really fascinated by what he had to say. He sounds like an awesome guy. And you start to open your mind's view about her and Elisa and the whole case and it's really nothing that we hadn't meant or come across before when we started. Sure, that was we knew that that was a possibility, that this was psychological, purely in nature. There might have been an abusive angle to it. At least in my mind, it was, well, she may not have gotten the food and the liquids that she should have, and they maybe didn't do enough diligence in providing that to her. But then again, I started thinking like, well, no, she was refusing it. It's like, what do you? then you're going to have to force feed her. So... What's going on there? So then after hearing this interview, it's like, well, geez, it's a lot of good food for thought. It makes you reconsider that. So where are you now in your thinking as we're going along? Keeping in mind, we haven't gotten to part three yet, but just where where are you right now with this? My jury is still out, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to yeah. look at some of these other angles that we're going to look at before we finish, but it's kind of like what I joked about after part one about I came out of a movie, even if it's a bad one, if you ask me right 10 minutes right after I got out of the theater, what I thought, oh, I loved it, it's great, you know, and, and then <laughs> yeah. later, it, and I'm not implying that John is a bad movie by any stretch here, <laughs> no, but no, no. what I'm saying is I've learned about myself that I'm, I'm going to have to hold my own judgment until we get to the end of the next part of our show. Yes, uh, me too, I will say, and I think that's great advice for everyone listening. So I got to say, I think I'm in the same camp. You hear the second part of the story or another uh, aspect of the story, and it gives me a lot to think about as far as her whole case. Now, I have not come to any conclusions, and so I'm with you. I think my jury's still out, but it may never come back in. You know what I'm saying? I, yeah. I may yeah. never fully arrive. That's kind of, I think, where I'm heading personally. I have some strong kind of directions that I'll, I think I'll talk about in the wrap-up of, of our final part three and our conclusions there. But right now, it's just, it's interesting. You're, I'm just weighing all the options. I'm weighing all the elements of this story. And yeah, it's, like we said, it's a little controversial. But it's you, the listener, who ultimately has to decide what you want to believe for yourself. Well, that's going to wrap up part two of our three-part series on Annalisa Michel. We'll be back next week with part three, where we'll discuss a few other possible medical diagnoses and go over our final thoughts on the case. If you'd like to hear yourself on the show, please visit astonishinglegends.com slash listener dash segues. That's S-E-G-U-E-S and follow the instructions. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. 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 I'm Shri Cardoza. I'm Jenny Chang. I'm Eva, and I give permission give to permission Astonishing Legends to use my voice, voice, my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. 
Good night. Thank you.